<laughs> hey everybody, this is Tyler. I'm Danny. And I'm Patrick. And this is episode 71 of Fried Squirms. We're here to talk about the people under the stairs with a guest. Cool. In case you didn't catch Patrick. Yeah, so Patrick had joined us on a previous episode of the Squirms on our Shining Commentary. Red Rum. So if you want to get the introduction to him, go back to that episode, because we don't want to talk about him. We don't have the time. There's a lot of backstory there. Let's move on. It's deep and involved. There's a lot of penises. (laughs) There were. (laughs) Deeply involved. Yeah, Uh, so not only is Patrick a former guest of the show, he's also the writer... Co-creator, producer, let's see, sound editor, editor, video editor, <laughs> you name it, of Jafar. Oh, yeah. Thanks, Danny. Great time being here. I'm kind of starstruck sitting with the uh, two stars of Jafar right now, Danny and Tyler. Oh, Patrick. Well, did you say Daddy and Tyler? I did. I said Daddy and Mommy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so with some of our previous episodes... We've been kind of choosing some films at random. We really haven't had any ideas of which direction we wanted to go in. In terms of, you know, like, we're going to follow this movie with this movie, etc. And this movie that we're reviewing today is no exception to the rule. But there's a reason why you're on board, which is really fun. What's the reason? I thought the reason was because as soon as we said we're doing this movie, he went, oh, this is in my top three. Can I come on? <laughs> <laughs> That's why you're on the show. I mean, we decided, Tyler and I decided, that we wanted to figure out a film, of course, what we wanted to do. We came to the conclusion that People Under Stairs would probably be a good time to cover it before we get into our stretch of the Purge films. So once we decided, like Tyler was saying, I mentioned it to you, and you know, you wanted to come on board. I'm like, fuck yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, People Under the Stairs always has held a special place in my heart like i said to these guys top three it's just like in mythological standing in my patrick context of uh horror upbringing and yeah just a phenomenal movie and an original screenplay and loved it loved it since i was a kid still love it still just hits it right on the marker right today nice before we get to it too much danny you said you had some news yeah so one of the segments we do like to do every now and then is, you know, update our audience on some of the news of the week. So this week, once again, I've got some good news, some bad news. I'll start off with the bad news this time and then work our way into some good news. Can I guess? Yeah. Margot Kidder? Yes, Margot Kidder. Actress passed away, was it today, I think? Yesterday. Oh, yesterday, okay. She took residence in Livingston, Montana. I suppose after she got into some of her, you know, filmography and later on in life, she became more of an activist. So she liked the idea of Montana having open, you know, wilderness. And it's, there's a reason I moved here too, but it's a beautiful state and she fell in love with it. And, you know, in a weird way, it's kind of a neat tie-in, I suppose, you know, knowing the fact that she took residence here in Montana. We're here in Missoula. It's relevant to the show because she has been in horror films throughout her career. People probably know her for her role as Lois Lane. I was about to say, she's Lois Lane. Yeah. She's always well, going to be Lois Lane so. to me, so. Yeah, unfortunately, she is another actress, you know, an actor, of course, that we cover on the show that has passed away. For why she was Black Christmas? Yes, Black Christmas, and I want to say, was it Amityville Horror? Okay. I think so. One of those. So, I thought it was relevant to the show. I mean, it was unfortunate. Heard about it earlier today. So, with that, did want to mention it. 
Now, the good news that I do want to share, two bits of information. First, ties back into an episode we just recently covered. I do want to point out that her name is also relevant to the show in that we smoke a lot of weed. Yeah, we do. And MC Chris immortalized her in Uh his song, Weed, where he mentions that he has a one-hitter named Margot Kidder. Damn. (laughs) Right back to the boys. All right, so... There's a collector of all things Tremors who just recently posted a tweet on some storyboards and some like original posters for Tremors. And of course, they've never been seen before. There's some conceptual art behind it. It is available online to view. It's kind of interesting. I mean, it shows the characters of Val and it's Bert and who is it, Lebec? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it shows them kind of like all decked out and. Some heavy equipment, all that good stuff. So it was kind of neat seeing that. And the other bit of good news is that the director of The Witch, Robert Eggers, is confirmed that he's directing a new film called The Lighthouse, I believe it is. It's about a lighthouse set in the 1800s. Of course, a care keeper. Nice. It is going to be shot in 35mm black and white. That's awesome. Yeah, as opposed to, I guess, modern day where people shoot in color and then go back and digitally switch it over to black and white. So... This is going to have some uh, some really unique qualities to the film itself. Yeah, the set design on the witch and the costumes and everything about that was so historically accurate and just beautiful. So I can't wait to see what he does with that. Yeah, and that was one of the films that Tyler and I had done, and it was a recommendation from a friend, Michelle, yeah. former co-worker of ours. And, man, I fell in love with that film. I mean, it's, wow, I cannot believe it took me that long to watch it. Yeah. But we had talked about the fact that, you know, if he decided to do another film, it would be interesting if he did a time period piece, and here we go. So, yeah. true to form, we'll see what he does. Well, it's okay. It took about Tyler, it took Tyler about 30 years to get to people under the stairs. That's okay, Tyler. That's true. <laughs> this was my first time. Guys, you, you popped my cherry once again. Yeah, we did. Yeah, it feels really good. Too. You bu- <laughs> You busted this time it was a my house wide open. <laughs> we got him, we got him, we got him. <laughs> yeah, we did. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, for... You busted my house wide open. Yeah, wow. we did. <laughs> Back door first. <laughs> just your little burglar. <laughs> yeah, so outside of that, that's about all I have to share this week. I mean, outside of the fact that I did pick up a copy of Scream Factories, The People Under the Stairs, specifically for this episode. Booyah. Booyah. So I have a plenty of neat insight into this film. Yeah, I didn't do shit. I'm ready to get to it, though. I'm really happy you guys made me watch this. Yeah. So, so we're going to get up in them guts and bolts of number 71. Guts and bolts. and bolts see who and what and all that good shit went into this movie people under the stairs all right so what i would like to to propose if it's okay with the rest of the group here is you know we like to go into the film talking about the cast and crew but before we do we like to give a brief synopsis of what the film's about and since you're a guest on our show and you did such a great job with the synopsis of the shining oh 
Spoiler-free synopsis. This yes. is the spoiler-free spoiler synopsis. Spoiler-free synopsis. Just try to sell us. Sell us the film. Uh, all right. In a few brief words. Or, I mean, it doesn't have to be too brief. No. A fool lives a pretty terrible life in the slums, living in the projects with his family and his sick mom, who is too poor to receive health care. So with the help of some friends, devises a plan to get some money for their family, unearthing some mystery and some terrible things lurking in the otherwise mundane suburbs. I don't know. Yeah. Without getting too into it. Yeah, I think it's, you know, we're kind of putting you on the spot, of course. But I think for a brief synopsis, (laughs) I think it's pretty, it's the mark without giving too much away. Yeah. So what that sounds be, good to me. What else can be said? The, the name the, of the movie is People Under the Stairs. So that implies something. But there are people under the stairs. Yeah, we're looking. What does that mean? Exactly. So with that synopsis, we can start talking about the people who went into making the film from behind the scenes. And knowing that this is a film that we chose for a specific reason, too. This is a Wes Craven directed and written film. And we're no strangers to Wes Craven. Is it his third film? Ooh, that is a good question. I would say, let's see. Uh, no, I want to say it's probably his fourth or fifth film. Okay. Because I believe great. he did, I want to say he did The Serpent and the Rainbow before this. And I know he did The Last House on the Left. That was, yeah. I think, his first film. He wound up doing The Hills Have Eyes, which we have covered. Oh, you know what? I think it's, yeah, The Hills Have Eyes and uh, what was the one right? The Last House on the Left. And then he went on to do, at least from my, my oh, recollection, 84s. Guys, this is way past that. And then you Street. have like Swamp Thing and 82. Oh, yeah, 82. Exactly. Oh, okay. uh, Invitate. Oh, no, that's a TV movie. Oh, but, so. I know he did some television series. Uh, you and I talked about that, too. Oh, right. Hills Have Eyes to Deadly Friend, we Deadly Blessing. Not fourth. Yeah. What do you think? Probably. Let's say. And that, yeah, 10. you mentioned Serpent in sure, the yeah, Rainbow. Yeah, let's go 10. <laughs> Yeah, he's done some shit by now. But it's before uh, Vampire in Brooklyn. It's true. A few years before. There are some interesting things I'll talk about later on in our next section that I can kind of see some elements of this film that he used in Vampire in Brooklyn. Also, we don't really have to go too far into Wes Craven, do we? Like, Not we've covered him a few times already on this podcast, and if you're listening to a horror fucking podcast... We would hope you know who Wes Craven is by now. <laughs> but as far as Wes Craven's right. filmography goes, I would say this is one of his most original oh, screenplays. One that deviates from his form mostly, because, I mean, I feel like when you think of Wes Craven, you think of Freddy Krueger. You or you do. think of Scream. Yeah, Scream. And so you go just oh, to kind of... Like that, yeah, yeah, you just go to Slasher, you go to Gory... Like it kind of set the tone and the archetype for that sort of. I totally agree the, with the that. slasher film. I mean, you know, Freddy ruled my childhood with, with that. But this one just takes a extreme turn. It certainly does. This and it's not even classified really as a horror film. It's like dark, comedy. dark comedy horror. Exactly. It's it, sometimes it can get a little campy. Yeah. You know, but you're right. It's a direction away from his conventional way of making films up to this point. Yeah. Unique storytelling, like you said. Uh, I guess one little bit of information I can give on that. So he based this off a dream that he had while he was in Brussels. And he wrote it, some of the storyline down. And the second half is that he recalls reading a newspaper article in 1971. This is from a newspaper in Santa Monica. I think it's called The Evening Outlook. And it involved, like you were talking about, a suburban neighborhood... Next door neighbor, nosy neighbor, likes to you know check on the neighborhood houses, make sure there's nobody up to no good. Apparently, they had witnessed two burglars go into a home, 
called the cops. Cops showed up, found the burglars dead, and inside they found kids that were being starved to death and chained up, and that gave him another motive to write in this story as well, which, you know, we'll talk about later in this film. Basically, it's starting to break the archetype of the monster, right? Because so far up in, in the film, the monster has been the thing that comes from outside. And and the dreamscapes. It's yeah. all defined by how it aesthetically looks. And, you know, he saw this monster coming out of the thinly veiled in this religious, suburban, white, you know, nice neighborhood. And then they're holding some of the most monstrous lives. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. It is unique. So there's a lot of outside influence that helped influence the storytelling in yeah. this film. So, you know, we talked about, you know, Scream, he went on to do that. I mean, what he liked to do, too, which is kind of interesting, is showcase certain talent with actors, actresses, even the people he worked with behind the scenes. And it helped launch a lot of careers when you look at the people involved in his projects. I think this being no exception as well. So, you know, with that, too, moving on from Craven, because we could spend all day Mm -hmm. talking about Wes Craven, is I'm going to talk about a couple of the people that help with the film. Our cinematographer on this film is Sandy Sissel. Now, I did get to watch some special features. Of course, she was involved. With her career, she started off doing a lot of documentaries. And from documentaries, she went on to do TV commercials. And then from TV commercials, she went on to do film. So Wes Craven had seen a documentary that she had done. It's called Salam Bombay. It's an Indian documentary. He liked her use of being able to use handheld cameras and able to work with children. So he said that not only that, but having a you know woman behind the camera gave him some freedom too because he was dealing with some pretty heavy topics and he was using, of course, children in the film. So he said having her on set helped with that transition of working with children, helping guide and communicating with some of the actors with some of the topics, of course, we'll delve into. She's, he said it just helped overall having a cast and crew of people that was diverse. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, that was a part of the reason why he picked her. So some of her credits include television work on The Wonder Years, which we've mentioned several times now on the show. She went on to do work on Camp Nowhere. You guys might be familiar with her handiwork and a, not necessarily for me, but some of my siblings, it was a childhood figure. I'm talking about Barney's Great Adventure. Is it strange to you that, like, I'm wondering if this resonates with me so much because, like, they used someone that worked on kids' shows so much. So this kind of feels like an R-rated Are You Afraid of the Dark? You know, like, I don't think it's any coincidence that he chose, like, this cinematographer that kind of does campy sort of things. Exactly. No, he definitely had an eye for talent. Yeah. Uh, Especially the more I get into some of these credits. But that's a, a good way of looking at yeah. you know her her body of work and how it translates. Yeah, he's not choosing someone that's doing horror films. He doesn't no, want dark and gritty. Uh, exactly. He wants this handheld kind of comedy. Yeah, you know. And she talked about the fact too, like she never envisioned herself doing horror films. And the more she got involved with this project, the more she kind of lent her hand to it, which I'll talk about later. But uh, some of her other work, she did a film, a soccer film. I had to mention it's called Yellow Card. It's about <laughs> a an African soccer player who winds up getting his girlfriend pregnant and it's about like baby mama issues. <laughs> it's like, that's unique. She wound up also doing Meet the Browns and Karaoke Girl, I think is one of her more recent projects. 
Our editor on the film is James Koblenz. He worked on projects such as the X-Files television series. He wound up doing 15 episodes editing. He worked on Millennium, the television series, Dark Skies, Final Destination, The One, Willard. <laughs> the Willard, that's the Crispin Glover version. Yeah, right. Yeah. Species 3, Return of the Living Dead, which was the Necropolis in Rave to the Grave films. He also worked on Blade, the television series. Oh, the Howling Reborn. With sticky fingers as Blade. Uh, yeah, dude. The Curse of Chucky. He's also done editing work on Hemlock Grove, the television series. Uh, Prison Break, Lore, and 24 Legacy, the television series. Pretty dynamic. A lot of I television, like, once again. Yeah, I feel like a lot of action in there, too. I yes. mean, I feel like the editor was specifically chosen to keep this fast-paced. And, oh, yeah. And it doesn't skip a beat. It just keeps going. A lot of shots, a lot of cuts. You've got some really good insight on the editing yeah, the, process, well, the, yeah, especially I, with film. Yeah, I, I love editors. It's the you know, it's the rhythm of the movie. It's the music behind the it movie. It is. It's the beat. Yeah, it's exactly. And so, we also have experience providing a beat. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm also a drummer. Ooh, it's all it's all online. It all falls in. But yeah, no, with this editing specifically, it's very. It's an action movie, right? Too. It's an action dark comedy. That's the guy. When I looked at the classification, I was like, horror is like the last on this list. It's like, well, you know, because there's horrific images that we see, mm -hmm. but horror is not really the basis of the movie. The, yeah, I'd agree. The plot yeah. is sort of, I, I kind of left this out of the synopsis. There's, it's, a tr it's a treasure hunt, right? That's unveiled early on. Yeah. yeah that's there, there's, a, there's a tale of treasure that actually is what entices... Is a catalyst. The, oh, yeah, is the catalyst that what? makes this boy choose to go and seek out this... This wealth. Honestly, when you go to watch this movie, the first two minutes of this movie is a synopsis of the movie. Right. And it, it really is. This movie just fulfills that fairy tale that's set up in the beginning. It is a very fairy tale-ish movie, too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's some really cool themes that are used throughout this film. And, like, I don't know, just literal campy things happen that happen in fairy tales as well. Mm-hmm. So, we'll get exactly. there. So, knowing that you are a musician, I think you're going to like this next person. The composer, which is not the original composer, mind you, the original composer for this film was Graham Revel, but Wes Craven worked with Don Peake on a previous film, The Hills Have Eyes, and called him in because of the way the score was going. So with that, Don Peake, interesting person. I want to talk about him just for a brief moment. So Don Peake, he went to a school, I can't remember, I think he said Los Angeles City College, as a matter of fact, studied music, and while he was there, a fellow student needed somebody to help play guitar. They were being showcased on some kind of live television. And she said that it was going to be an A minor. He knew all the chords, wound up doing the gig, and he started getting noticed at the college for his guitar work. Of course, by the ladies, he's like, there's something in this. When he graduated from college, because of his guitar work on that show, the Everly brothers noticed him, and he wound up being their lead guitarist from 1961 to 1963, toured with them. Once they disbanded in 63, he wound up working with Phil Spector on The Walls of Wonder and The Wrecking Crew, and they wound up doing all kinds of neat hits with Ike Turner and like all these other musicians. He went from that, and he took a little break. He wound up getting another call to do some guitar work on a film that I believe was Paramount, he said, we're doing, and... It was a Steve McQueen film, and he said that they put a 70-foot screen in front of him and an orchestra that were facing him. He was staring at the screen, and he was just kind of 
I'm kind of ad-libbing here, but he said he's kind of jerking off on the guitar, just working, like experimenting, because they wanted somebody who didn't know a lot. And uh, anyway, he said that right there was what got him into composing music for movies. He's like, that's when I knew I wanted to do it. So he went from, you know, being a musician to start composing music that Steve McQueen launched his career. He said he did a short film score, wound up winning an Oscar. He did another film, like the following year, won another Oscar. And then, yeah, he got a call from Wes Craven, started doing horror films. And then with that, he wound up doing a lot of theme music for television series such as Knight Rider. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to get into it. Yeah, he did Knight Rider. He did, uh, there's a television series I watched, My Two Dads. He composed okay. the theme for that. Taxi Cab Confessions, the HBO show. He did the theme for Taxi Cab yes, Confessions? Yes, he did. Oh, shit. Yeah, so you might have heard I know, I never heard work. that. I only watched out with the volume way down. Yeah, for the most part. <laughs> so, you know, he had an extensive career. I mean, he won all the... Doing, I mean, there's so many credits that he has. There's no way I could sit there and mention all of them. But just knowing the fact that he's worked with all these musicians, I mean, there's a laundry list of people I can name, but that information is readily available. But so anyhow, I wanted to mention him because he was a second person brought on board to compose the music. I'll share a little bit more information later on. All right, moving on from Don Peak, we have some special effects teams. I have Image Engineering. They were the special effects team. Rourke Productions, they helped with the mechanical dog effects in this film. And KNB Effects Group, they help with the special makeup effects. And KNB is a huge name in special effects because it's Kurtzman, Howard Bergman, and Gregory Nicotero. They formed their own company because they got tired of not making any money. (laughs) (laughs) So anyhow, our producers on this film are Shep Gordon, Wes Craven, Marianne Madalena, Stuart Ambesser, Dixie Cap, and Peter Forster. Production companies are Universal. They helped present the film and the live pictures. Distributor was Universal Pictures for the 1991 USA theatrical release. The release dates, November 1st, 1991 here in the States. December 27th, 1991 in the United Kingdom. The budget had an estimated 5 to $6 million budget for this film. Opening weekend, it made $5.5 million. That was dated November 3rd, 1991 for a limited release. Gross, it made $24 million here in the States. When you add in the worldwide gross, it had a cumulative gross of $31.4 million. And I'm sure that's not including DVD sales, etc. All right. We've got a few taglines. This is kind of funny because it's an overlapping tagline, especially when I read it. But I do like my tagline. So this is another <laughs> brief synopsis of the film that we could have gave. All right. So here it goes. In every neighborhood, there is one house that adults whisper about and children cross the street to avoid. Now, Wes Craven, creator of A Nightmare on the Street, takes you inside. So the overlapping part was that last sentence. (laughs) There are two different taglines. The only difference is that last sentence. There's a line that one of the actors gives I thought would have been an appropriate tagline. I don't want to mention right now because it's kind of a spoiler. (laughs) So anyhow, that's our... Let me guess. Is it from the end of the movie, though? It's it's a two characters sharing uh, some dialogue. I think it's more towards the middle of the film. Yeah. All right. So anyhow, that's our crew. And now we should be talking about the cast of the film. All right. Cast-wise. Lots of people. This is partially how you guys sold it on me. Because we've kept making some Sandlot references at work. Oh, yeah. And you guys are like, oh, well... The black kid from the sand line. I know, not to sound, uh, you know, 
Hey, there was only one. He was, yeah, was, he was the one in the Sandlot. Was his first? Was it his first movie? I'm almost certain it wasn't, but this is definitely what got him into these other roles later on down the line. Yeah. And as much as I love The Sandlot, I couldn't picture that in my head. But if you guys would have said Jesse Hall from The Mighty Ducks... Oh yeah, you would have been sold, eh? Oh. Or if you would have said the little kid from two different segments of Michael Jackson's Moonwalker... Oh yeah. So that would have been his first film, actually. <laughs> Because, I don't know if I've mentioned this before, but I'm kind of a giant Michael Jackson fan. Yeah, so am I. Likewise. I might have you guys beat on that, because I was alive. I mean, we all were in the 80s, but... Beat it. You know, I'm a smooth criminal, I can't help it. (laughs) You're looking at the man in the mirror. It's just weird, because it seems like Wes Craven just kind of collected all of our childhood, I don't know. There's some pop figures in this, for sure. All of these things that we... are the ingredients that we enjoyed, and then just made a horror film to just finish. (laughs) <laughs> but yeah, right. I uh, I actually used to make my parents tape every Michael Jackson special that came on TV so I, I could too. just sit there and rewatch them. And so I don't know how many times I've seen Moonwalker now, but it's a lot. <laughs> I think they, my, my parents only successfully did it once, too, because it was back in the day when you had to like set your VCR up with your TV and, you know. Oh, it was a my, big deal. My, yeah, my mom and dad were the most like technologically non-savvy people and so it was like every time i just get the noise i go to look at the video and it's just white noise because yeah. you couldn't look at it during it because you were just you know it was push the record button was was going the time was running i mean he was in mighty ducks yeah Jesse he was. hall and d2 influenced the first album i ever bought queen greatest hits Nice. You said greatest tits? Mm-hmm. <laughs> greatest tits. <laughs> Queen's greatest and, tits. Uh, Mighty Ducks, not to be confused with fucking Mighty Ducks. <laughs> it's completely different, but he stars in both. <laughs> yeah, so we're talking about Brandon Quentin Adams. He plays Poindexter. <laughs> oh, yeah, maybe we should give him a name. Williams. Just the black yeah. guy in the Mighty oh, Ducks gosh. and you the guys. Sorry. All right, so of course I do have some of his other film credits. Some of the ones I wanted to mention, because he does have some pretty cool ones, is he did do an episode of Quantum Leap. That's a show I really enjoy. You might have seen him in Empty Nest. He was on the television show A Different World. He lent his voice in a lot of things. One of them was The Ghost in the Machine. You might have heard some of his work in Kingdom Hearts, the video game, if I'm not mistaken, the English version, some of the uh, voices in that. He was also in episodes of The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, Boy Meets World, Sista Sista. You might have also seen him in Moesha, the television series. And as of right now, I believe there's a pre-production work that he's involved with. And he's also, you know, he's a producer and he's also acting in it. I can't remember the title, but it's in pre-production. We'll see what happens. He took a brief stay away from Hollywood for a little bit. I think he had some friends in the business want him getting murdered and shit. I, mean, I don't know if you guys have ever seen the Steve Harvey show. But the uh, actor who played Romeo on that show wound up getting shot like in 2002. And he he took it kind of tough. And yeah, he just took a break from it for a little while. So um, yeah, anyhow, he's our protagonist in this film. Fool. (laughs) Fool. Fool. I mean, it's a really great name for him. I mean, it certainly is. Because I feel like you have to be foolish to do a lot of the things that he's doing. Totally agree with that. All right, so here's some big names I want to mention because it ties right back here to Missoula, Montana. And this is where I I have to sit out of the loop a little bit. Like these, I haven't watched it yet. Missoula, Montana. What, What, Tyler? All right, so the people that we're mentioning, first person I'll mention is Everett McGill. He plays Man 
in the film. And Everett, interesting, unique person. Was that daddy? (laughs) Oh, Tyler. (laughs) So Everett is known for having over 1,300 stage credits to his name. He was also a part of acapella groups. He was really involved with a lot of music, mostly voice work, of course. It kind of shows a little bit in some of his dialogue in this film. So anyhow, yeah. So he started doing some work with David Lynch. It goes all the way back to his work in Dune. Now, he was also in a film with somebody we like to cover from time to time. He was in a film called Quest for Fire, and that was kind of what initially got him some recognition. He worked with Ron Perlman and some other actors, yeah. Some of his other credits, one that I've mentioned before on the show, it involves Gary Busey and Corey Haim. That film is Silver Bullet, Stephen King's Silver Bullet. That's actually where I first had seen him from. That's something I always, anytime I think of him, this is what I think of. Yeah, he wound up doing some work with Clint Eastwood in Field of Honor, Heartbreak Ridge. He went on to do James Bond's License to Kill. Then, of course, he starred in Twin Peaks as Big Ed Hurley. I still have yet to watch Twin Peaks. Dude, so good. I didn't... Like, I'm not sitting here geeking out over the fact that him and... Wing! Who I'm sure you're about oh, to yeah, mention I next. Oh, yeah, just a moment. <laughs> he was also in Fire Walk With Me, which I think David Lynch wound up doing all of this stuff that was cut out of Fire Walk With Me with some of the actors. He wound up piecing them back together and did, like, another release of Fire Walk With Me. He was also in Under Siege 2, Dark Territory, and that was pretty much it. He took a break for a long time. It took him a while to get back into acting, I should say. He retired, and David Lynch reprised Twin Peaks, and he came out of retirement. God, that reprise, too, is just fucking yeah. phenomenal. Which I haven't seen the new season. It's just You've been telling me to, I will, Daddy. <laughs> it's, I think it's one of the best artistic pieces of 2017, right? It was mm, 2007. Yeah, last year. Sure was. Uh, yeah, it just kind of, like... It didn't go under the radar, but it's No, it was, it was definitely like, well-known. Uh, yeah, it was... I'm still processing it, <laughs> rewatching it. That's it's awesome. just, it's profound. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing the new season. I'm looking forward to Tyler getting to check it out. I'm going to get there. Yeah, it's okay. It's just a matter of I'm time. I'm getting there. Okay, so, co-starring with Everett McGill is Wendy Roby. This is her film debut. She plays woman in this film. Now... You might have recognized her also as Nadine Hurley in Twin Peaks and Firewalk With Me. Nadine Hurley, that is. So here's something interesting. This is a little bit of a spoiler, but not really. She had mentioned the reason she got this work, she got a casting call from her agent. Part of the reason is because Mark Frost, who worked on the X-Files, and I believe he worked with David Lynch on some other projects. I'm not sure if he worked with him on Twin Peaks. Yeah. Yeah. So they kind of recommended her. She went in. She said she was inspired by Anthony Hopkins in, you know, his Hannibal portrayal as Dr. Hannibal Lecter. And she said she slicked her hair back and just kind of went there and did her lines and boom, they were sold. And she helped get Everett McGill on and because they had that chemistry on Twin Peaks. But she said that after season two, it wrapped up, was on a Friday. She wound up reading her lines at like, you know, meetings on that following Monday on the people under the stairs. So it was a quick turnaround for her. Not only that, was this was her introduction into horror films. Because she's like, I was basically just a stage actress before this. <laughs> I had no idea. God, I wonder if she was inspired by, um, was it Audrey Hepburn who was Mommy Dearest? No, it's Joan Crawford, I Joan, think. Is it? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but holy That's shit. really funny because I, I don't want to skip ahead to the next section yeah, no, too much. Right. But there was a part where I was just like, I watched it yesterday on Mother's Day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great one. But seriously. And like, there gets up to be a, a scene. 
yeah. towards the beginning involving mommy and shit. And I was just like, are these motherfuckers making me watch Mommy Dearest on... Oh, I'm sure throughout the filming process she was inspired by others. But just for her audition alone, she yeah. was trying to channel Anthony yeah. Hopkins. No wire hangers yeah. ever. Oh man, yeah, seriously, right in the, oh, into the bathtub. <laughs> That's funny. Okay, so Wendy Roby also went on to do work on the television series Quantum Leap. She was in another Wes Craven film, Vampire in Brooklyn. She was in The Dentist Part Two. She was in some television episodes of Party of Five. You might have seen her in Were the World Mine, which I believe is a film, I think it's kind of breaking down some of the barriers of, I want to say like transsexuals and transgender people in general. So it was kind of a film that showcases that. And she was also in The Attic Expeditions, which is kind of a telling <laughs> lie considering this film. <laughs> okay, so moving on from Wendy, we have Ving Rhames, which he was kind of unknown at this time. He wound up playing Leroy in this film. He was in a Michael J. Fox film and a Sean Penn film, which actually I was highly recommended to my best friend way back in like the 90s. But that film is called Casualties of War. It's a Vietnam War era film. He was also in Jacob's Ladder, which I mentioned earlier. Love yeah, he was also in Stop Our Mama Will Shoot. Con Air. Yeah. Diamond Dog. There's a film I highly recommend. It's kind of sad. It's kind of a downer. But it's a really good one because it does have uh, Danny. Are you still talking about Con Air? No, oh, no. No, this next one. I that would be funny. God damn you. I was like, I was searching in my mind for like the depressing part of that. And I was like, maybe, you know, when Nick Cage meets up with his daughter at the end, he's got that teddy bear. Like, and it's, it's, he fishes it out of the gutter yes. and it's all fucked up. Hi there, baby girl. And she looks absolutely terrified <laughs> yeah, of him. I mean, that's depressing. Like, you know, he's been institutionalized. He's never getting out. No, that's not what it's I was going talking about. right back in. Okay. <laughs> that's fucking funny. Okay. Now, the film I was mentioning is Ving Rhames was in The Saint of Fort Washington, which is a really good film. It's about homeless people. Uh, let's see. He is Dr. Peter Benton's brother-in-law in ER. Did we mention that he is Marcellus Wallace <laughs> in Pulp Fiction? Pride's a motherfucker. Yeah, you might have seen him in Mission Impossible 1 and 2. He was in Rogue Nation. He was in some television episodes of ER. He was in the film Baby Boy. He was also in a boxing film, which I really like. It's called Undisputed with, I believe it was Wesley Snipes. He also lent his voice in Lilo and Stitch. He was in the remake of Dawn of the Dead. You might have seen him in Piranha 3D and 3DD. And he was also in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. So moving on from Mr. Rames, we have A.J. Langer. The A.J. stands for Alice and Joy. She is currently the Countess of Devon. I was about to say... When I was looking at people's credits yesterday after I watched this movie, I'm like, okay, who the fuck is this? AJ, and I click the name, and I'm like, is this Link fucked up? Is Wikipedia (laughs) fucking with me? Yeah, right. Who the Countess of, oh, and then I had to read through the, but I clicked it a couple times. I opened it up. I'm like, did I just click the wrong link? Yeah, because it's like. Did I get super stoned, and was I reading about royalty (laughs) earlier, and I just opened the wrong tab? Nope. Turns out she's royalty now. Yeah, which is really cool. So, or nobility or whatever. Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's a title of nobility, you're right. So, <laughs> A.J. Langer, she goes back a little bit. I remember seeing some of her work in the 80s. She was on some projects like Drexel's Class, which had Brittany Murphy, and it had Jason Biggs, and a whole bunch of other people who were kind of young at the time. I mean, it was basically kind of like a Saved by the Bell knockoff. She went on to do some work on the Wonder Years television series. She was in Baywatch. She had a huge role 
and My So-Called Life, MTV's My So-Called Life, with Claire Danes. Danes. (laughs) (laughs) She's married to Will Graham from uh, the Hannibal, the series. Oh. Yeah. I was just like, what? She was also in Escape from L.A., you might have seen her. Say, that's actually what I know her from, is yeah. Escape from L.A. Mm, and because she was on all of this shit in the 90s, I mostly saw her on I Love the 90s on VH1. That's pretty wow. awesome. Yeah. She was, she was a, <laughs> I mean, she was a pop figure in the, in the mid-90s. I mean, for Re- sure. Repackaged and sold back to Thailand. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> in a montage. <laughs> oh, my God. Her commenting on the shit that she did. Yeah. It's kind of funny. Right. It was crazy. <laughs> <laughs> the 90s. Now I'm a countess. That's fucking Jared, wild. Jared Leto. Yeah. Okay, well, no, she went on to do some work also in Seinfeld, the television series. You might have seen her in Brooklyn South. She wound up doing the television Three Sisters, Eyes, and a television series called Private Practice. She currently is a spokesperson for fibromyalgia because she does suffer from that condition. So she's a big spokesperson for that. This is also her film debut, I should mention. Somebody we've mentioned before, a couple episodes back, was a 420 episode. It involved several characters, but one in particular because he was a cop who wound up getting tased in the face. Oh, shit. Talking about Sean Whalen. And Sean Whalen plays Roach in this film. And this is also his film debut. So prior to that, he did a lot of commercial work, and he got a call. He said that he went into Wes Craven's office and was half naked, crawling around on the floor, mumbling and groaning and shit, and got the part. Uh, He said he told some of his business friends who were going to job interviews and suits and ties, and said, yeah, that's kind of how I got my job. How did you get your job? (laughs) Yeah. So I want to go into Sean Whalen real quick, because... Either he has the same name as this cat, or he really did grow into this guy. But have you seen Sean Whalen now? Yeah. Did you look him up? He looks like a badass now. He's done some really cool shit, to be honest. I mean, but yeah. I mean, yeah. If it's the same guy, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's Sean Whalen. So he looks like this now. No, He's that's also, not him. No, that's not right? Him. Yeah, see, that's what I thought. So that's there's another. He still guy looks the same, Sean but older. Yeah. There, there's another guy <laughs> that looks over there, just a receding hairline. <laughs> that's all. Because I was looking and I kept looking for Sean Whalen and that other guy there. I'm like, <laughs> I know. I was like, this can't, this can't be this motherfucker. And that other guy's all like, okay. So that other guy, if you're out there, Kyle thinks you're super badass. <laughs> well, he looks super badass, and then I started looking at him. I'm like, goddamn, like <laughs> it was, it was just that black and white photo in front of that American flag. <laughs> Proud to be well, that's the an thing that, that dude's all mogged out and shit. Yeah, yeah. I looked at his fucking his Instagram and I was like, oh, never mind. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, not Roach. Roach is woke. Yeah, yeah, Roach is super woke. <laughs> so Sean Whalen, we've mentioned that he was in Idle Hands. Of course, you might have also seen him in some films such as Batman Returns. He was in Jury Duty. He was in Waterworld, which I know Tyler's really high about. I fucking love Waterworld. Love Waterworld. Paper. You might have seen him in The Cable Guy. <laughs> he was also in Tyler's, one of his favorite films, because he's seen it over 80 times. You know which film I'm talking about, How Tyler? I? <laughs> That's a good one. That Thing You Do. Oh, Jesus. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> he's also been... I have like, seen that movie all of the times. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, I remember. You, there was an episode we talked about that. Oh, my God. Good. Fuck you, Tyrone. <laughs> from doing that to me 
No, look. he did some really cool works like the film Twister with Bill Paxton. He was also in Men in Black. He was in Never Been Kissed alongside, I think he was like a, somebody who kind of jostled back and forth with Drew Barrymore's character. He was kind of well known for that. Yeah, have you ever heard of a movie called Twister with Crispin Glover in it? I don't think I <laughs> Is it the game? It's no, it's <laughs> it's real. Look it up. It may be the Twister. Okay. I love Chris McGlover. Um, it's so We're odd. huge fans. So I was so disappointed when I was a child and I received that movie <laughs> thinking it was the Helen Hunt uh, <laughs> <laughs> riveting. Yeah. And I was like, oh this I don't even think this is out yet. And then I turned it on and I was like, yeah, this you is, had a screener at all. <laughs> so everybody check out. Christian Glover, the Twister. <laughs> That's awesome. All right. So Waylon's also done work on Charlie's Angels. He was in the slasher film Late to Rest. He was in Rob Zombie's Halloween 2. He was in the television series Lost. He was in Hatchet Part 3, another slasher film. He was in HBO's Jersey Boys, which is a really good film, actually. He's in a film called Ugly Sweater Party. He said it's funny because that film is literally about an ugly sweater that gets possessed by the spirit of his character, and it's like a Freddy Krueger-type character. So he says he actually gets to live out one of his childhood idols in Robert England, which I thought was kind of neat. He was also in Death House, which is coming out soon, and he's also in Rob Zombie's upcoming Three from Hell. Oh, sweet. Yeah, so we'll get to see him in some future projects. All right, moving on from Mr. Whalen, we have Bill Cobbs. He plays Grandpa Booker in this. He's done a wealth of films. I'll mention a few. You might have seen him in New Jack City. He was in one of my... I'm jokingly here. I'm being facetious. But he was in The Bodyguard. If you like Whitney Houston and Kevin Costner. So he was in, in Air Bud. Yeah, he was. He was in Demolition <laughs> Man, which we've mentioned on the show before. He was in The Hudsucker Proxy. He was in one of Matt LeBlanc's huge hits, the film Ed, where he plays alongside a chimp that plays baseball. It's in A Mighty Wind. <laughs> He was. He's in. Uh, yeah, he sure was. Guess who else was in that thing you do? No way. <laughs> he was also. In, I still know what you did last summer, Tyler. <laughs> he lent his voice in the Rugrats television series. He was yeah, in one episode, the Kwanzaa episode. Of course, <laughs> he was in television Six Feet Under. Highly recommend that show. It's one of my favorites. Yeah, it's really good. He was also in the Drew Carey Show. You might have seen him in Oz, The Great and Powerful. And he was also a part of the Night at the Museum movies. Nice. Yeah. So moving on from Mr. Cobbs, I have Kelly Jo Minter. She was one of those actresses I seen several times as a child for several reasons. But she does play Ruby Williams. She plays full sister in this film. I've seen her in a film I've mentioned a couple of times on the show. It's a film called Summer School. It came out in the mid-80s, roughly. There's a classic scene of a group of delinquent high school students who put on a scene of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which she's a part of. Really good film. She was also in The Lost Boys. She was in A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 5, The Dream Child. She was in the film Mask with Cher and is it Eric Stoltz who played Mask? Oh, I don't remember. I don't know if I, I ever saw Mask. It's a good film, but it's kind of fucked up. It's kind of like a teenage John Merrick she was also in Popcorn. She was in a Michael J. Fox film, Doc Hollywood, and she was also part of the Martin television series. See, I mostly remember the fact that I have very recently been just plowing 
through ER, and she played a crack mom in one of the episodes. Oh, I'm sure of it. <laughs> There's a lot of people who had, you know, they guest starred in ER. I mean, it seems like now almost every film we've done, there somebody been in ER. Well, here, we're going to segue then into the fact that for all of like 10 seconds on screen, Connie Marie Brazelton yeah, plays sure Fool's Mother. Mary in this film, yeah. And she is Nurse Connie on she ER sure for 113 episodes. I had that written down. She was also in The Joy of Sex, which is a film from the 80s. Nobody cares. She's Nurse Connie. She's no. Nurse Connie. <laughs> you might have seen her in the television series Martin and Rock, which are two shows I grew up watching. She was in a Kurt Russell film, also a Paul W.S. Anderson-directed film, Soldier. And she was also in Vanish, well, yeah, the television series. I, I actually series. really, really like Soldier. It's a really good movie. <laughs> Could you just sign here uh, from Nurse Connie? <laughs> 113 episodes. <laughs> Jeremy Roberts, he plays Spencer in this film. He's a partner of Ving Rhames' character. So Jeremy Roberts has been in television series such as Freddy's Nightmares from the 80s. You might have seen him in National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. He was in a few episodes of Doogie Howser, M.D. He was in Star Trek Part Six: The Undiscovered Country. He was also in Sister Act 2. He was in Diggstown. He was in... Oh, Diggstown is a great fucking a, movie. James Woods. Yeah, Love that's that. a good movie. Yeah, that is a good film. He was in The Mask. Yes, he was. He was Bobby the Bouncer. You might have seen him in Money Train. Bobby the Bouncer. You remember characters from The Mask? character actors Dude, i fucking i love the mask okay also in cuban pete <laughs> <laughs> i mean i remember jim carrey you know oh, oh i hope so and uh, <laughs> Cameron yeah so that was really like weird if you would have forgot but, jim carrey uh, <laughs> <laughs> who was the mask i'm just saying that's like those were the yeah the only two i really remember from that film i'm just like okay Put on that mask, he got all crazy and rapey. (laughs) (laughs) Another twister. (laughs) All right, so Mr. Roberts was also in The 13th Floor, The Mexican, and Herbie, Fully Loaded. So our next actors are kind of bit players. I'll breeze through what they do. I'll talk about some of the credits. So Josh Cox, he plays a young cop in this film. You're like, what? Isn't that Cox with two X's? Two X's, not three, almost. (laughs) Not quite. <laughs> All right, I so, kind of hate that. Yeah, it's probably Hollywood purposes. It's not a choice. Keep going. <laughs> I, was, I was born this way. <laughs> so, Cox with two X's. <laughs> you might have seen his work in Freddy's Nightmares, a television series. He was also in an episode of Quantum Leap. He starred in Babylon 5, the television series, as Lieutenant David Corwin. He was also in an updated version of Wes Craven's The Last House on Left from 2009. He was in Thor, actually, as the frost giant Hellstrom. He was also in the television series Strong Medicine as midwife Peter Briggs. So moving on from Mr. Cox, two X's, not three, not one. Oh my god. I didn't notice it. Sorry. It's okay. But the nerd in me just cried out really badly because I didn't realize that one of the Frost Giants is named Hellstrom when that's the name of another Marvel character. There you go. (laughs) It's pretty cool. All right. The veteran cop that plays alongside Mr. Cox is John Hotstetter. He's got some really interesting credits. Reason why is because there's a few cartoons I'm sure both the boys here, including Uh, myself, have seen. Our Randall Bird. Polk. In Vampire Hunter D. Bloodlust. He certainly did. Left Hand in the video game. 
Now, you guys might have heard him actually in the G.I. Joe series from the mid-80s, 85 and 86. The reason why is because he voiced Bazooka, and he was also in the Transformer television series from 86 as Ramhorn. He reprised those roles for the movies as well. Now, he was also in Beverly Hills Cop 2, a film called No Way Out. You might have heard his voice in the English-dubbed Princess Monona Kay. He was also in the television series Murphy Brown. He was in the film Star Trek Insurrection. He starred in Spawn, the television series from 97 through 99. And Tyler, you did mention he was in Vampire Hunter D and Bloodlust, the game and the movie. All right, moving on from Mr. Hot Stare, I have John Mahone. He plays the police sergeant briefly in this film. Why did I mention him? Because he was actually in a classic horror film, probably one of the scariest of all time, actually. And I'm talking about The Exorcist. So he was a lab worker in that film. He was also in L.A. Confidential. You might have seen him in Armageddon. He starred in a few episodes of The X-Files. He was also in Austin Powers, The Spy Who Shagged Me. And he was in the film Zodiac, about the Zodiac Killer. All right. We have Jan Birch. He has a stair master. <laughs> I, just, I didn't want to get... Yeah. <laughs> It's fucking funny. It'll make sense later he, on, I promise. <laughs> he is absolutely a piece of exercise equipment. He is. He I is a stairmaster. that face, and I'm sure you could climb it just like a set of stairs. It's funny because he is Swedish, so you could definitely climb him. <laughs> so I'm talking about Jan Birch. He was in the movie Men at Work. You might have seen him in Slumber Party Massacre Part 3. He starred in Santa Barbara, the television series as Hans. He was also in Cyber Bandits. He was in an episode, I think, or two, of Charmed. He played Warlock Kane. This one's for you, Mr. Patrick. He was also in Tim and Eric Awesome Show. Great job. He was on the episode Origins from 2009. You might have also seen him in Terror Tales in the upcoming film Death House. Our last but not least credit in this film, I have Michael Coplo. He plays Stair Person. <laughs> now... Why did I mention him? There's a few films I've mentioned in the past, and one of them I mentioned quite briefly on this show is because I like it. It was a recommended film when I was in high school. This film I'm talking about is called The Stoned Age. He's one of the main actors in that film. He has an experience going to a BOC concert and gets hit by the Grim Reaper Eye. <laughs> Don't fear the Reaper. Yeah, it's a funny film. It's a stoner comedy, hence the name. The Stone Age. That's the reason I never watched it. I like looked at the cover. And it's oh, like it's the Stone Age. It shows like three hippies on the front of a car with a psychedelic background. It's basically about a bunch of stoners from the seventies just looking to party, bro. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Michael was in the films Point Break, which starred Neo and uh, one of my favorite Roundhouse actors of all time, <laughs> Mr. Swayze. All right. Now Michael was also in Don't Tell Mom, The Babysitter's Dead. You might have seen him in 1992's Buffy, The Vampire Slayer. He was in the film Frogs. He was also in One Good Turn. He made some, I guess, guest appearances in ER, the television series. And he was also in the film Counterclockwise. All right, so that's our cast and crew. We gave you a brief synopsis. We must give you some warnings. Okay, a little bit of language. Some blood and gore. Uh, yeah, some blood and gore. Some violence, some violence intended towards children. And animals. And animals. Some wealth disparity. Yes, there's some <laughs> economic inequality. Socioeconomic issues. That's right. Hints of incestual, incestual relations. Yeah, relations. 
we should well, also say as, I mean, it goes beyond that, though. Well, yeah. <laughs> that relationship is something else on its own. There's also <laughs> implied cannibalism. Yeah. yeah. Uh, no, oh, no, there's not... Really it's not implied. Yeah, no, there's blatant cannibalism. Blatant cannibalism. Uh, but you're right. Racial tension? Yes. If you don't like close quarters being confined in spaces, there's a lot of that in this film. If you don't like resourceful black children... If you're just full out racist, <laughs> racialist. What about violent, fetishistic, murder fetish? <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. I guess I, uh, the, there's some weird stuff that seems to be tied to sex, but it's never quite spelled out to the point where you know no, exactly that, no, what's that's going heavily on. Implied. <laughs> heavily implied. I mean, come on, the yeah. gimp suit. The, yeah, there's Spoiler. a gimp suit. <laughs> yeah, we've already mentioned. Uh, if you don't like fortune telling, tarot cards, things like that, stay away. If you don't like films in the early 90s, don't go back to that people's house. If you don't like Ving Rhames. If you don't like The Mighty Ducks or The Sandlot, then you're an asshole. But aside from that, that's that's basically... If you do like wholesome movies with no swearing, then this isn't your movie. (laughs) That's right. Not to say that they're swearing up a storm, though. No. I was just thinking we were getting too negative there, so I wanted to do like something. No, really, this movie's great. It's fun for the entire family. Speaking of which... I mean, I was about to say, you were just showing it to your nephews, nephews right? Night, yeah. So. yeah, this is this <laughs> series has been like a, a family affair from the get-go. I heard about this movie from my brother at a really young age who saw it. You know, he'd stay over at friends' houses and then he'd come back and tell me the scariest movies he'd seen, you know, Lord of Illusions or People Under the Stairs. So they it created this mythology for me where I was already like visualizing what these things were. So by the time I saw them, I already had so much built up that it was just like, oh man, it just hit me like a rock. And so it's been part of our fabric yeah. all growing up. And really shaped my, uh, I don't know. Childhood? Shaped my childhood. I don't know. Shaped my ideas as far as like horror aesthetic. <coughs> like it was the first thing, first, I don't know, horror movie to break that monster archetype for me. Because before I'd watched movies about like, you know, Pennywise the Clown and Freddy Krueger and yeah. these monsters that are up there visually monsters and they're coming from the outside to come and get you whereas this one's about you know not that yeah. monsters that look like they could be decent people or I don't know it's just it's a good point so don't be expecting outside monsters no outside monsters and it's all inside nobody's gonna be getting out ever Ooh, sorry about that it's okay playing footsie over here <laughs> <laughs> let's stop this for a second then we'll come back and like talk about this Do movie without way. any reservations we can get in the fucking spoilers and say what we really liked about this movie and quit just fucking pussyfooting around this shit let's do this squeal god what's happening to me oh god where am i why am i hearing these things oh god what What's going on? Oh, Jesus, come on. Oh my God, what's, what's going on? Where, where am I? Oh gee, why, why? Come on, somebody, somebody. Ah, come on, come on, come on. Come on, somebody. Sir, come on, somebody, somebody's there. Somebody's gotta be there. I will shock you. Come on, sir. Come on, sir, you must listen to me. Sir, I only have one question. How does that make you squeal? So we were just here doing our normal in-between, and it was hard for us to not talk about this goddamn movie, so we're just going to talk about people under the stairs. Go. (laughs) All right, so since this is a film for at least two out of the three of us, 
that goes back to our childhoods at least. I know Tyler's is like your formal introduction dude, to the film. Dude, yesterday, Mother's Day was my first time. So, <laughs> Mommy's Day. Dude, that made it really weird. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, it did. All right, so I would like to ask our guest, Patrick, on the show, what was your formal introduction to the people under the stairs? Oh, I'm, I mean, I mentioned it briefly earlier. My brother, actually, is just the introduction to all of my horror background. Wait, you. can we get this story with the impression of your brother that you were doing just a couple minutes ago? Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, Patrick, have you ever seen Lord of Illusions or People Under the Stairs? We'll fucking scare you. <laughs> Uh, but he'd come, you know, he'd come in home and tell me, he'd come from these, you know, sleepovers. He was four years older than me, so I looked up to him like, you know, he was a demigod. and Yeah, so I had this whole mythology set up around all these movies because I had just heard of them, and he wouldn't describe too much. He would just, it was something that was taboo. And so finally when I did see them, I was just, you know, it kicked the block out from under my feet because this one was just so far off from what I had been watching and had been exposed to as far as horror films. I kind of, you know, cut my teeth on, like, Bram Stoker's Dracula and, and Stephen King movies and It, where the monster, it's very, it's very, I don't know, black and white as far as who's the bad guy. And so exactly. is this one, but it just, it gets in there so weird, you know? Like, just where we're coming from, we start off with Fool being in this moral conundrum of, you know, going to break into a house, you know, start off with a burglary. So something that's morally wrong for all of us but we're mm -hmm. still rooting for them, so they're not the villains. And then we get into who the monsters are, and it's just like, it's not what I thought it was going to be. I think for me, too, because this was a film that came out in 91, now I didn't see it in the theater. I don't think I caught it until, actually it was on cable, so maybe a year or two after its release. I told my sister Ashley, because she's a huge fan of this film, so we got her back on board after the Kevin Bacon debacle. <laughs> She thinks that every film that Kevin Bacon's in, that he's going to be a child molester. So, Oh, because of that one film that he was <laughs> Two in. Two films. He, oh, yeah. I mean, it kind What's of, the it, one film you're talking about? Oh, I can't even remember the name of it. But the Woodsman? The Woodsman, yeah. And it really, it did really taint my view of Kevin Bacon. Cause no I puns? I couldn't, yeah, no puns. I could not disconnect that from Kevin Bacon. I'm like, I know he's an actor playing a story, but the fact that... You know, he even acted and had to go through this uncomfortable scenario of sitting this kid on his lap. And I'm just like, oh, you had, you know, you talk about actors channeling these roles, you know, mm -hmm. being those people for that. Like, yeah, okay, duration. well, you had to be a child molester then. I mean, I know you didn't touch children, but you had to get into that mindset. And that's disturbing. That's a good point. So fuck you, Kevin Bacon. <laughs> <laughs> I don't mean that. <laughs> All right, so, so now imagine getting into the role of daddy. Oh, my exactly, gosh. Exactly, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> is he a no shit, right? So, in the 90s, like, so probably 93, I'd seen this film typically on cable, like HBO. I don't know if Cinemax, but if Cinemax showed it, probably Cinemax too. But anyhow, I was telling my sister Ashley, there was one time in particular I remember watching this film. Some of my grandmothers, I could have been older than maybe 11 or 12. And in South Carolina in the summers, it gets hot and humid. And at nights, typically, you'll get some pretty severe thunderstorms, which we kind of like here in Montana. <laughs> But anyhow, I was watching it probably like 1 o'clock in the morning. One of my first views of this film. In the middle of the film, the power goes out. Ugh. It's like I said, it's about 1 o'clock in the morning. Yeah. I'm 11, 12 years old. I'm sitting on the floor watching it, basically. Yeah. And I hear little taps. You know, it was kind of like on, off, on, off. Getting nearer, it sounded like. And 
My imagination was running wild, particularly because of this film and because of the noises. Come to find out, it was the family poodle <laughs> and uh, yeah. kind of eased me back. But that was just one of those things that I associated with this film because something as innocent as the little poodle coming at <laughs> yeah. and the dark, it was unsettling mainly because of this film. And that kind of struck a nerve, not necessarily because the film is unsettling because of a poodle, but just the fact that... It- I was young. Yeah, Yeah, this film as a whole is unsettling. Well, it creates, that's it. It, It's a disturbing tone and it's unsettling tone. I mean, when I read that people classify this as a dark comedy, I was kind of shocked because I didn't get that aspect until I was an adult viewing the film. Likewise. When I was a, a kid, those comedy parts were just that more disturbing. I'm like, why are they acting like this? Kind of absurd, yeah. Yeah, this absurd way when it's so dark, you know, and... Like, he's dancing around and singing. Like, I didn't think that was funny at all. Like, that just... Not until later, like it just dis- saying, yeah, yeah, it just disturbed me. I'm like, oh my god, what am I watching? <laughs> yeah, so my introduction, I guess making a long story short, I was probably 11 or 12 years old. Now, you said you did see it at a young age, but do you remember yeah. how old you were? Oh gosh, I was, yeah, probably like 7 or 8 or something. So that would have, about the same time period, 94? Yeah. 95, okay. somewhere yeah. like that? Yeah. Okay. And then Tyler, you mentioned you saw it last night. So I saw it last <laughs> night for the first time while eating some dinner. It was pretty great. Were so, you still hungry afterwards? I was, actually. I was very hungry <laughs> last night. <laughs> you were just eating your steak right alongside of him. Oh, just like, no no buckshot. Chowing yeah, on the body. Spit not the buckshot. <laughs> <laughs> so here we go. Because I'm coming off it fresh. I can't I can't say, oh, this used to scare me when I was a kid. I'm coming at it now. I kept hearing, like, oh, my God. Like, Danny, you got so excited oh, that we were doing it. And then, oh, Patrick, you got it so excited. You're like, oh, man, this is in my top three. I got to come on the show. I'm like, okay, cool. I'm so excited to watch this movie. Put it on. About a third of the way in, I was like, okay, guys, but, like, Candyman's better. Like, this is okay. But I don't understand why... Then I get, like, right underneath halfway, and I was like, oh, I get it now. Like, this movie's insane, and it doesn't let up. Like, it just keeps getting more insane. I love this. Fuck yeah. And and there was a couple times where, like, I thought I knew where it was going. And then, at least in one of the cases, it ended up kind of being right. I'm like, okay, people under the stairs, there's going to be people under the stairs. What role are they going to play? Are they actually going to be bad? Are we going to get, like, Nightbreed? But did you know Sebastian Bach was going to be down there? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it was kind of Skid Row down there, wasn't it? It was. It was all... Danny and I talked about that. It was, like, all... 90s hair early early 90s hair metal bands it was and about a kip winger <laughs> maybe, it's like, maybe that's a joke you know it's just like they're all living in the basement it's just like hey we're getting the band back together <laughs> we can jam down here throw us some food every now and then that's right man kick you some rent but then yeah you run into them though and i'm like okay so it's going to be like Nightbreed, especially because at that point they'd already shown the fucking the parents are the bad guys yeah. I was kind of surprised that they established that that early on. Yeah, I thought they were going to draw that out more, but no, I mean, I'm not. I'm not. Right yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know why I thought it was going to happen, but like the movie just kept, and that was the thing because it turns out that they were kind of. I mean, not kind of. The people under the stairs were the victims and shit, and yeah. it was kind of night breedy in that way. But that doesn't really play until the end. They were actually still really dangerous for most of the movie, and I thought that was kind of interesting too. 
It's just that most of the movie moves away from that area. The people under the stairs area? Yeah. Most of the movie isn't under the stairs. No, like, like I said, when I heard this movie's name, like, first uttered by my brother, I was just completely visualized something different. You know, I wasn't, because it just seems like that's the cornerstone, the people under the stairs. I mean, it's in the title. It right. is the title. It's, it's the title. So you're like, oh my God, this is going to be about a civilization of these crazy monsters <laughs> yeah, that live under stairs and they just, everybody knows they're there. When you're running up the basement stairs, you know that there's someone there to grab your ankles. It's going to be like the mole <laughs> people or something. Yeah, exactly. And then you watch it and you're like, okay, no, we don't even see the people under the stairs until, what, halfway or more than halfway through the movie. And Yeah, I think you finally get to see them, perhaps, yeah, about a half an hour in before you even get to see any under the stairs. And are they dangerous, Tyler, or are they just cannibals? I mean, they're hungry. <laughs> they're always hungry. <laughs> That's right. He keeps them hungry. He makes them seem like they're dangerous just because they're reaching through there. But I love that Wes Craven plays with that this entire there time. There is kind of a twist to that dynamic. Yeah, the, the aesthetic monster in every case this time is like somebody we root for. You know, mm-hmm. the scary guy living in the wall with his tongue cut off. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And like the, the demons, the hair metal band in the basement <laughs> are, you know, the day savers. Spoiler I mean, honestly, like the first character I thought was a monster in this movie was fucking Leroy. Yeah, because he, yeah, he's a bit he, of a bully. Well, because he comes in. Hold on, Leroy is very smart. Yeah, he comes in and basically tells Foolie that he doesn't have a choice. Yeah, he's like you have to steal from me, or you, look, motherfucker, like your mom's gonna die and it's your fault. So you gotta like be a man. And start stealing things. That's the way. And he's a friend of Ruby's. He's the one that points out she's turning tricks, which I yeah. thought was glossed over very quickly, too. And he's, yeah. I mean, he, don't you think he kind of represents sort of like the, I don't know, like the hood aspect of of that this whole like socionomic issue that's going on, you yeah, know? Absolutely. He's, he's like representing like, okay, like we're being repressed. But the way to do it is to well, get it, under the to do the black market, get under the system, and it's like the life of crime for you know a young black man, and like pulling him out from the projects, but telling him that it's like a more like being an asshole by being roping the mom into it, you know like this mom's health yeah is to, you need to come collect gold for me. <laughs> Mentioning that maybe to give a little bit more insight to that too is. With Wes Craven, because I did listen to the audio commentary, you know, and he talks about exactly what you're speaking of. And I mean, when you analyze the film, he was making a remark on the Ronald Reagan and Bush senior eras of their presidencies and what it meant to people of minority, people living in inner cities, in this case, ghettos, etc. And that's what it was. It was a commentary on the fact that people who are otherwise have good intentions, who are just, it's a family unit, right? They're doing everything they can. They're falling on hard times because of the socioeconomic disparity in wealth here in the United States. You know, a lot of people have to resort to crime. Right. And in this case of our protagonist, The Fool, he is having to become a man at a super young age because he is the, uh, the head of the household. Right. And you were saying with Ving Rhames' character, he just kind of epitomizes you know, minority males, African-American males who have to live in this cycle of crime just because of their circumstances. In most cases, not always, but it's a social commentary on that is what I'm getting at. 
So with that, yeah, he. Well, yeah, but he's a character to... that's definitely trying to still perpetuate the cycle. Yes, exactly. Because exactly, he's just. It seen... completely reminded me of like watching The Wire and like them getting the the kids into the drug game early yeah. on, and being right. like, "Look, you can all be the next you're kingpin." Right. Which, yeah, no, you're gonna get fucking gunned exactly. down in the street. But he pulled on his moral. I mean, pull on his like emotional strings to, you know, rope him into this ploy because exactly. he just he's selfish and he saw this little gold map. I mean, so, yeah. Looney's gold map. <laughs> now, here's something that's cool about that. He talks about where he found the map. It was during a liquor robbery. That was the only scene Wes Craven said that they had actually shot. They shot a burglary scene at the liquor store, and they were using Fool as, you know, the kid. Again, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so he was kind of, he mentions certain parts later on in the film, Fool, that is, that he was taught certain tricks and aspects of the game. Yeah. You know, so it was already established that he knew some things, but this was kind of the pivotal point now because it's either you go in, get you that cash, get the money, or you're getting kicked out on the street eating beans with your family is basically what he surmised it as. All right, so now with all of this established about Leroy, though, yeah. what do you think the chances actually are of <laughs> Trump making him secretary of pussy? <laughs> <laughs> I love that, man, because it's such a random like thing he says to him. <laughs> Yeah, all the kid wanted to do was be a doctor. Yeah, maybe the president made me say, "Damn, that's a crazy line." But yeah, I love it. It's hilarious line. Also, I love like right in that couple minutes of the movie too. You get the super like establishing this as the '90s of the TV blaring, and you get fucking Gulf War. Oh yeah, and yeah. yeah. 90 soap operas. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, also their style, everything that they're wearing, mm-hmm. so 90s out. It's ridiculous. Which is unique in contrast to the family because their Dressed whole up get up is like 19. 40s, 50s. It can yeah. even maybe 30s. They're right like there. a prototype couple from the 50s, you know, yeah. floral dress, down a pearl necklace. It's kind of the image of like what people, I mean, every generation does it, you know, it's like this was a time period that was much more calm and peaceful and just it was like a golden age but in reality it wasn't for a lot of people yeah exactly yes it was just it, it's a facade it's the facade it's the, yes the idealistic america utopia for a lot of people well yeah and it's just a good it's good symbolism for like hey for a while we cling to this idea of projecting an image that says you know we're happy and we have it together exactly but we're in reality we're eating people in our basement <laughs> you yeah. know like or and we're having sex with our sister like yes yeah. and then also we we veil that in religion too like which is in oh, every west craven film yeah because it was like his parents great his mom as a well, his mom and we're also very obviously the reagans <laughs> oh yeah i mean that's exactly what they were. Oh, yeah. exactly. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> just being like, just... It was the American facade. <laughs> darkly comical way to just be like... And then mother This is actually me. what these white religious <laughs> rich people are doing behind closed doors for their taboo sexual fantasy. They're killing people and trying to raise the perfect child. Yeah, exactly. I mean, according to whatever fucking twisted code they have. Speaking <laughs> of their children, Alice. So... I don't know, random stoner thought, any way connected to Alice in Wonderland? Absolutely. And a lot of it is because of the surreal landscape that she has to deal with. Yeah, she's basically stuck in the upside down. Oh yeah, for sure. Right? Mm-hmm. Like she's just like, she's living on this opposite sided world where everything is what it's not. She says like a line or something like, sometimes you have to go in to get out. I was going to say, that is actually the line that 
I was going to say that could be used as like a tagline for this film. I thought that would be a perfect Sometimes yeah. the way outside is in. Yeah, that would it be perfect. Al- it ties back to the tarot but, reading in the beginning. Exactly. But instead they want to... Because re- she's the dog. Instead they want to reveal the twist. They want to be like, the sixth sense, he's dead. You know, <laughs> no. like... You know, or, that would have been kind or of Or it's interesting. not called Sixth Sense, it's called He's Dead. Yeah. You know, like, they just are, they're just revealing what the twist in the movie is. Like, the people, and just, I mean, I guess it gets you thinking, but it's still, it's like, yeah. oh, but that was an intriguing part. The people under the stairs. Yeah, I mean, you're right, they were trying to create, and this, the family were trying to create a perfect boy for the perfect girl who was Alice, of course. Perfect. You see all these, hear no evil, speak no evil, all yeah. that good stuff, see no evil. And uh, the people on the stairs were, they were supposed to be the perfect boys, and they Shh. broke the rules. They're speaking evil. <laughs> that's right. Go to hell. You know uh, too much. We're going to have to cut out the bad parts. That's right. Oh God, <laughs> the giblets. It's just like, yeah, it's just like a satire on people pursuing. Yeah, exactly. It's, this it's just, I, exactly, I, super ironic that they're like, they have this moral code while they're, you know. <laughs> yeah, like you said, they're prison. cannibals. They're yeah, they're like kidnapping, torturing. Well, yeah, and they're killing. Mani- they're manipulating people. They're taking yeah. advantage of entire hoarding wealth. Yeah, I was about to say, and in, in the larger picture, they're seriously just taking away from the community. They're literally buying up all the. So symbolically, like they're like the billionaires. They're yeah, like the white right. billionaires, basically. But they're also like literally doing a lot of what was going on like we talked about it a little bit during the Candyman episode yeah, because they bring absolutely. up the same shit they, that's they were buying chunks of property and then sending gentrification rent so high, is basically so was, everything was getting shut down yeah they are gentrification yeah yeah <laughs> and that's something I that's yeah what was craven wanted to portray you know it's it's kind of unique that under the veneer of all these things that are american and what's idealistic for certain people and groups of people aren't the reality of other people and it's very telling because he is using the house as a ploy. You know, it's, it's something that's it's grand when you look at how complex that fucking house is. Yeah. On the inside and on the outside, it's spooky and horrifying. And But they're hoarding all this wealth as well. And they're living under a facade of this perfect family. But at the same time, they're doing all this nefarious shit. Yeah. <laughs> all right. It's, it's complex. Just, speaking of the, the complexity of the house... How long do you guys think Roach was living in the walls? For a while. He got Christmas lights <laughs> okay, and so that's, that, there's the, yeah, booby traps. There's, a, there's some weird things. Did he, he didn't set those booby traps. Those traps were to... No, uh, the, to the, the traps him. were to try to get him. Yeah. Right. So how did he avoid all those traps? How were those traps being like set off for the first time by a fool? And how and did Alice? Prince never set off the traps? That's a good question. There's a lot of plot holes as far as them running around through the walls. And I feel like, I mean, Roach got, like, really fucking stiffed in this movie. Because Roach got kind of shortchanged. He was living, you know, for how many years? He's, like, he's supposed to be, like, 13 years old or something? Or, yeah. Ru- or something roughly, around there. Yeah. yeah, he's lived for over a decade. Fool shows up one day, and then Roach gets gut shot. <laughs> like, <laughs> he's not even there that night, and he's, like, trying to scurry out of the room, and he gets yeah. gut shot. And I'm like, Look, right. his dying motion though was to guilt trip him be like <laughs> this Alex. is now your problem yeah. <laughs> what was really hilarious about this scene too that I mentioned I said funny that Roach still has a sense of humor while he's gut shot <laughs> and he's holding up that dead body oh my god <gasps> that's one of the best scenes <laughs> he scares the people off from yeah. from hurting fool yeah, potentially exactly. and then he's like oh no it's just a dead a decomposing body. It's yeah. me. And I'm like, oh, what, what a guy. <laughs> I also feel like he just got kind of ripped off for screen time. Like, 
Yeah. I mean, as big of a part he played, yeah. he should have made it further into the movie. Even if he you ended up in the same fate, yeah. give him like longer into the movie. He buys it like just a titch over yeah, halfway just, through, something like that. He is really, There's still another act to go through. He at least. is really interesting. He's like yeah. indigenous, voiceless wall person. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Like leading him through the. I don't Here know. we have the rarely glimpsed wall person. <laughs> Seriously, but he's like a completely different specimen, you know? Like, he's evolved he, from under the stairs to in the walls. Exactly. <laughs> running, running. He's a, yeah. And he's always yelling and taunting, you know, like <laughs> shooting that slingshot of his. God. That's, yeah. I Seemed love to having fun, fun infuriating daddy. Yeah. <laughs> For years. Yeah. For 15 years. He is like the equivalent of the fly that you just can't swat. Until Fool comes around and just stops him for like two seconds. Yeah, he's the plot hole in his life. Jeez. Now, what's interesting in, about his character, you're right, he doesn't get much screen time considering... Yeah, I mean, he's integral to like what's been keeping Alice going and just that bridge between actually getting out and staying in he was supposed to be you know like a martyr type of character he had ample opportunities to escape he stayed for the sake of alice and probably for the people under the stairs as well yeah just feeding everybody yeah and he was just basically (laughs) staying there to create as much havoc on the people who essentially stole his childhood yeah you know totally so i mean yeah it's it's weird being like initially i think with his presence and the way he spooks fool in the beginning you, you're unsure whether he's has good intentions, bad oh, intentions. Yeah, yeah. I remember the first time I saw him, I was terrified. I was like, oh, okay, that's the people under the stairs. That's oh, shit, I yeah, was, I thought he got him. I was like, like that's fuck. what I was thinking. Like, yeah, he was the scout. <laughs> there's the, mo- there's the yeah. monster. Like, we haven't seen the real monster yet. These people are, you know, keeping something of greater evil in their walls. And, like, oh, no, it's something yeah. that they've engineered this hell that they're living in, where their greatest statement that they can say is, like, burn in hell. That's, like, their... Burn in hell. Oh my god. The hilarity of a fucking catch line when it's uttered. <laughs> fucking catchphrase oh, over there's and over. so many of these. Burn. May they burn in hell. May they burn in hell. <laughs> Alright, speaking of uh, catchphrases. May they all burn in hell. <laughs> uh, we, I can't help but think you of... You know, they. They. <laughs> Everett McGill. Like, I want to mention him just you know for a little bit. Number one for the fact that he is willing to wear a gimp suit yeah. in this film. And Wes Craven made a comment, and, you know, that was one of the questions that always popped up. is like, you know, why the gimp suit? And he's like, well, I just left it up basically to the makeup and costume department and the production designer. And they went to... Somebody had this in their closet? We <laughs> no, said he, go for it? He said they actually went to, like, a BDSM yeah. type of store and bought the goods and fitted him for the costume and they kind of ran with it but he said then after that of course it that another dichotomy of this what appears to be like this pristine family but they have these fucked up sexual perversions sick sick perversion (laughs) yeah and it's like the worst perversion murder right yeah yeah hunting murder you're right sex fetish and incest yeah Yeah, murder fetish it i mean yeah exactly it may have been not the uh like an intended decision right, but it's exactly. like uh it's still just disturbing you know it, regard i like before i even knew <laughs> i when i you know, watching this at seven years old, you know seven years old i had no idea there's that was a sexual, sexual connotation yeah, you know like i just see all of a sudden a full bodysuit guy running around you know with like a zipper over his mouth <laughs> and i was like you know wielding a shotgun oh. and i'm just like 
again, just imagery I've never seen before. It's a monster. I never really... So, I never thought about the fact that fucking Pulp Fiction wasn't the first time that Ving Rams worked with somebody in a gimp gimp suit. suit. Exactly, yeah. (laughs) Maybe that was the... uh, He got fucked over by him twice. Impetus, right? It was Impetus for him in Pulp Fiction. Uh, He's like, oh, not again. (laughs) Goddamn gimp again. Hey. You know what the... Ving, that's, that's pride. The irony of that is the fact that not only was Ving Rhames working with Wes Craven in this film, right, with the gimp suit, Bruce Willis winds up saving him, Ving Rhames in Pulp Fiction. Bruce Willis got his debut in Wes Craven episode of Twilight Zone. Oh, yeah, 85. <laughs> so, it's full circle, guys. Full circle. Thanks, Wes Craven. Uh, <laughs> but what I wanted to mention a little bit, too, is with the lines, with Everett McGill. Yeah. This you might be think... the most quotable movie we've done since Henry Portrait wow. of Serial Killer. So, what are some of the lines that you, you guys like that immediately... Shh, you're speaking evil. <laughs> you're speaking evil. <laughs> I think you and I, Patrick, yeah. kind of jostle with some yeah, one-liners we, back and yeah, forth. Yeah, we've thrown them back and forth. I've always liked the... I got him, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god. <laughs> yeah. I that's one of the best. I mean, he's dancing around. Prove it. You killed Prince. <laughs> I like shit. it. Yeah. Oh, shit. <laughs> very, very tense about this. <laughs> Wait, he says, does he say, hey, fuzzball, your mom sleeps with cats? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which, okay. Let's go off on a little Prince tangent for a second. Okay. We've brought him up a couple times. Not the artist formerly known as. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, one of the things I ended up having to write down was that Prince would have been a lot scarier if he didn't seem to be just exquisitely trained no, and holding right. back at like all times. I mean, I was said something about Prince too. I was saying. Anyone who's had a dog would know that it would be over in the first chase. Like, dogs catch up to you in four seconds or, like, less, you know? Yeah. You can be a field across from this thing and start running, and all of a sudden, they're right behind you. And poor fool would have just been destroyed by this dog. Mauled. Mauled. Yeah. <laughs> when, especially when he's holding that dog's head back on the door. I'm like, okay, no. Nope. Prince, <laughs> Prince just, I think he, he, gets, oh, he gets bit by Prince. His hand gets bit, but he's okay from that, even though Prince would have just he, uh, crushed all the bones in his hand. Part of his foot does hand. get nibbled on. Yeah. I, in the, Prince yeah, does not seem very vents. efficient for the, the beast that he is. They, yeah, that's what, that was really part of my note, him. was that, like, yeah. oh, like... Prince could have just finished him at any time if oh, the dog really w- yeah. was going for if it. If there's like. a dog there, it's over in seconds. You know, <laughs> the dog sees you, you scream, and then yeah, there's a confrontation, you exactly. know? It's not like, oh, we can just continue to run down this hallway from this dog. In we can play tug-of-war with Ving Rhames with this dog. Which was a hilarious scene, though. That's the first time, like, as watching it as, as an adult, that's probably the first time in the movie <laughs> that I, like, laugh out loud is when... He's hiding behind the chair, and, pops and Prince is just, you know, monitoring, looking over the situation, and he just pops up at the wrong time, and they meet eyes. He's like, oh, shit. <laughs> just gets attacked by this dog. It's cool that you mentioned that, too, because a dog, at the end of the credits, there's, there's four, four different... Dogs. Yeah, there's four dogs. Of course, a mechanical dog, stuffed dog, yeah. things like that. So some of the actors, Sean Whalen in particular, he was talking about one of his scariest moments on set. And he's like, well, there's a scene with he and Fool. They're going into the furnace in the basement. And I think they cut it out in the end. But he said that 
they used two different dogs. The first one they used was the nice dog, the obedient dog. And they were trying to get him as close as he could to the furnace, trying to latch onto him. Yeah. You know, but he's like, the dog was just too chill, right? And so the trainer brought in the aggressive dog, the one that leaps. So when you see the dog that actually goes towards, yeah. you know, Ving Rhames and Brandon Adams, that's the aggressive dog. But they had a trainer at all times. Yeah. You know, so anyway, he said they brought the other dog in. And he said, all right, so Wes Craven kept wanting me to leave my leg out in between shots. He's like, all right, we need you to put your leg out a little bit further. And he said, when they, you know, call action, the dog, doing all that, and the trainer's yeah. holding them and shit. He's like, that was the only time he was ever scared on sets because he's like, how many times are you going to keep putting my foot out before the dog just bites <laughs> how, me? Yeah, how close. And he was like, you know, out. the actor who played full brand, and he's like, he was in that furnace just kind of like, just <laughs> giving the thumbs up, like, you got this. Good luck, yeah, because if, like, <laughs> any of that was carried out, for real, oh, that like, dog would have fucked him up. Oh, yeah, the dog bites your arm, That's there goes your forearm and all your, I mean, it's yeah. just going to, if that the pressure there is just going to crush your forearm. So I think looking at this film now and looking at the use of the dog is it's also symbolic or maybe like another critique of when you look at certain I hate to say it like this but like white America. Yeah, you got the perfect family, mom, dad, and typically a dog. It could be a I think in certain cases it could be German shepherds or some kind of dog that can sick yeah. and heal. Exactly. <laughs> you know, and in this case because they're in the hood, I'm wondering if he used a Rottweiler intentionally. For the fact that it's... Cop dog? It's, well, not necessarily a cop dog. I think it's more like it's an aggressive t- style of breed of dog. Yeah. More commonly for like... And it's the 90s. It was going to be a Rottweiler. Yeah. Either that or... I mean, I, it's, pit bulls as well could be another... <laughs> but your Rottweilers Rottweiler. play pool. <laughs> I mean, Cujo was a Rottweiler. So, I mean, I wonder if that's maybe an influence. No, Cujo was a St. Bernard. Oh, oh. So, sorry. It's all right. Hey, it's all right. <laughs> But I'm just, I'm curious if that was kind of like that intentional use, you know, like it was also another thing attached to this family that was, you know, an idealistic image of this family. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, it makes sense too, as far as just, they have a a guard dog in the house, they have traps, they have all this. Yeah, exactly. You know, they're going to have a big, a large breed, quote unquote, aggressive breed dog, although I don't support that saying. (laughs) No, of course not. So... During the Guts and Bolts, Patrick, you mentioned something that I thought was really interesting. You mentioned that it kind of felt like a kid's R movie. Yeah. And I wonder, and Danny, I mean, I guess you listen to the commentary, so maybe you can comment, but it feels like some parts were pulled back, even though it was an R, it felt like some parts, even some small parts were pulled back from maybe even what they originally were, because I know that Fool had at least one ADR line that I noticed. When he's fucking telling her that he has to take a leak. Yeah, if yeah, you yeah. watch his lips, it kind of looks like he said that he has to take a piss. Which is what Spencer told him to say, was that he had to piss. Yeah. And I, I think you're probably right in a, in a way. They don't really go And they only go... They, tell. they do the one F-bomb, which is usually reserved for PG-13. Because yeah, exactly. you get the one before it pushes it over to R. But this was R anyway. Yeah. It's weird because, I mean, I know that they... I mean, I read that they were really uninhibited by studio influence, and so it's not like they had a lot of outside sources no. telling them to try and, you know... But I wonder if that was more this. of to push it more towards that the well, comedic bend. I think so. I mean, that's like something that was lost on me as a kid, but I just felt like with any time you just have a child protagonist, especially with these horror films, when you have a child protagonist, it sort of leads it in a certain direction. And I feel like it's a. It really had to do a lot with like the the cinematographer and the. 
writing style. Knowing too, like with the actor Brandon Adams who plays full, his grandmother was on set a lot of the time because. So that was that was grandma's edit. Well, <laughs> we were like Wes Craven's looking over, and she was like, uh-huh. and he was like, okay, well, maybe not that scene. Because I well, I know before this movie, Wes Craven was known for doing a lot like. As you go back in his film history, it gets more vulgar. Oh my gosh! You yeah. know, like oh, Last House on the Left is like really disturbing and, and really gory. And yeah, this was different for him because it's more instead of like I don't know a surface level horror slasher shocker commentary. It's, it's yeah, yeah, it's commentary. It's satire, and it's it's just a different type of art piece. And so I feel like it speaks better through this. Kind told of from t- a child. The, yeah, from this, the child, it has more genuine yeah. approach. It's less grotesque, you know, less, uh, I don't know, perverted and gritty. It's yeah. Like, uh, you know, that's a good, a good way of looking at it. Because I think if the main protagonist had been an adult, it would have been probably a lot more skewed towards, it could have been gore or the horror aspect. Yeah. Whereas from a child's point of view, because it is so absurd, it is comical. Yeah. I did notice on my second time through when I was really looking for details and doing notes and shit, they did hide a lot of, like creepy little details in the set design the room where he ends up accidentally stabbing prince yeah he ends up like when he's listening for where they are when he first runs into the room he puts his fucking head against the opposite wall and there's like hundreds of fucking photos of children like behind schoolyard fences and shit Ooh, i didn't notice anything yeah exactly that room is like it's almost like a dedication room or it could be yeah, like maybe not hundreds, room. but there's probably I mean there's there's quite 60, a few. 70 like right. Yeah. They've been going through a mass amount of children and anybody that's come to check up on them, right? Like oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, Alice and she doesn't imply she tells them the full straight out that the dolls are of the souls of the people who were salesmen, burglars, who saw too much. Anybody, yeah, yeah exactly. Anybody can saw too much. And so she's making these tributary dolls, and she's even sewn them up for full. Yeah, and Spencer. And yeah, Leroy. she whips those things out, and then she has an industry after she gets out of that house. She know? does. I mean, she can, she can sell transition. Etsy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Etsy dolls. Handmade <laughs> dolls. That's how she. Oh, uh, that's gonna be our new YouTube series. Idea. Is uh, Etsy dolls <laughs> following her making dolls for the daily yeah, departed? People under the stairs. If you haven't thought of it yet, you know, sell the commemorative dolls that she made in that room. Give us credit. We would get, yeah, send us a dollar. Yeah. Or a doll. Yeah, I would too. I a doll or dollar. A doll hair. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Hair from the people, probably. Oh. All right, so here's something I want to mention about. What do you think they all had cut off? I don't think it was just tongues, right? <laughs> Wendy <the> Ruby. Yeah, I want to mention the mother, of course, in this film, Wendy Roby. We're talking about Nadine Hurley from Twin Peaks. Now, I mentioned that this is her film debut. And listening to her commentary on this, not necessarily throughout the film, but just for her part and how she got the part, etc. But the scenes that she has to share with A.J. Langer, who plays Alice, are super intense, very emotional. They're complete opposites of what she is in real life. Like, she's very well-spoken. She seems to be very sweet and just very thoughtful. And long story short, her first, very first scene that she shot was the tub scene. Yeah. And she talked about the fact that Wes Craven, you know, was just telling me, he's like, you know, I know you're going to have to ad lip, but you just keep going until we tell you cut. Right. 
And so she was talking with AJ. She's like, all right, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to throw you in the tub. She's like, the still brush was actually real. She said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to stretch your dress. I'm going to put it against the tub and scrub it. And you're going to just yell bloody murder, right? And so she's like, when this was going on, you know, she's like, I can't, She this is from her. She's like, I can't remember half the shit I was saying. She's like, it was something about whores of Babylon. She's like, there were Bible verses I didn't even remember I knew. She's like, basically, we just were going full steam with it, you know, and Wes Craven gave them the creative freedom to do it. She's like, but after a while, she's like, she could hear, you know, cut, cut, <laughs> right? It's just like, yeah. and she's like, nobody on set would come near them because they were at that point emotionally exhausted. But that was the first time they had met, and that was the first scene they had shot together. Wow, what a bar to set. I mean, yeah. it totally sells it, too. That's one of the most disturbing scenes in the film. When she puts her in the bathtub, I feel like they actually threw her in a scalding bath. Yeah. Like, she no, fucking sells that Craven did shit. say that the water in the tub... Now, I mean, you know there's effects for the steam coming up. Yeah. But they said they literally made it as hot as possible for her, AJ, to get in. So, like, as much as she could bear. Like, she was willing... Yeah. To do it right even the scene where she is coming down the stairs and she yeah. slips in the blood she's like that's a real action shot like oh yeah it wasn't stage it was like that yes. was natural and he they were concerned they're like are you okay she's like no 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 she's like i'm fine she's like i want to make it as authentic as possible so a lot of that shit in the film i mean <laughs> it's interesting because as a casual viewer we mentioned this a lot is you don't look at the actor themselves, you look at the character they're portraying, and you get lost in that image of them as a person. Absolutely. And, you know, looking at it now as an adult, I'm like, man, that was a hell of a fucking performance oh, for man. somebody who's making a film debut. From that point on, she talks about the fact that, you know, she, anytime Hollywood or, you know, an independent film needs a red-haired psycho bitch, they come knocking at her door, give her a ring, so... All of them just really changed. I was, I, I know it too. I was highly impressed. Slipping on blood is always amazingly disturbing. Like it works in every movie I've seen it. With the other movie I've seen it, Cape Fear with Robert De Niro. That's a great film. Wife runs into the the kitchen and just slips right on that pool of blood. And it's like, (laughs) there's something so amazingly horrifying about that. But it works every time. You're just like, ah, <laughs> yeah. It's it's something that you can relate to in a sense, yeah. You know, because it's it is, like it's real and it's visceral. Having, yeah, having an accident on someone's death, you know, it's just like it's that's heavy. <laughs> it's just ridiculous. It's like tripping yeah. on their shoelaces or something. Well, with the dark comedy that's woven into this movie, though, what it reminded me of was uh, fucking Dead Alive. Exactly. It's like, it, that's it. it. That's why it's disturbing because it's like slapstick with it. Yeah. It's like, oh, Charlie Chaplin <laughs> slipped in the blood again. Oh, he slipped in the blood again. Yeah, it's funny, but it's like, why am I laughing at that? Like, as a kid, I was just like, that's not funny. You know, like, you can't make fun of that. <laughs> no. Don't make fun of that. Uh, it now, turns like, out you can completely make like, fun of that. Oh, yeah. I just put my head to any of them and just laugh. You know, I was just like, oh my God. You know, what I kind of like too, now all these years later, and introducing it to a new generation of horror enthusiasts. Hey, guys. (laughs) Along with Tyler, I was going to say my (laughs) nephews. It's kind of interesting seeing it from their point of view now. You know, their reactions, their real reactions to it. How old are they? The twins are six, and the oldest is ten. And I was like, you know, I saw the film closer to my oldest nephew's age. And I'm like, wow, it was interesting at first because he had like all these questions. So did and he, I. he was being silly though. He's like, I mean, I understand his questioning, but it was yeah. just like, if you just watch yeah, for another watch five minutes, it'll tell you. Yeah. yeah. And then he had another question. I was like, just 
Harper just chill? And so, long story short... Are they going to get out of this scene? <laughs> here's the thing that sold them. Like, my nephew, my youngest nephew of the twins, by like a few minutes, <laughs> he's, he, I can already tell, he's like, he's a horror enthusiast. He loves Tremors, <laughs> by the way. Anyhow, he was like... Everybody mm. should love Tremors, Oh, it's great. by the way. <laughs> no, he was already tuned in. Fuck you, Kevin Bacon. <laughs> <laughs> he was tuned in. The other two were just kind of passively watching it until... Full went down in the basement, and Roach jumped on them. Then they were hooked. They were like the saucer-eyed, doe-eyed. And, you know, and I was trying to think at what point in the film as a kid do I remember kind of like, all right, now you're in the shit of it. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I'm, I'm kind of, I, it's hard to remember all these years later, but I would imagine probably somewhere around that point as well. Gimp. Gimp suit for me, but I'm oh, watching so, it at so, 30. So, so. so Tell me, though, why, Tyler? Why was it just... The aesthetic, or you go ahead, explain to me why it get stick out. Well, it was kind of a small build-up, because you do have, honestly, every single line that Everett McGill delivers in this movie is fucking, he chews the scenery the entire time, and it's amazing. So I started to get sort of handsome, like, there was started to be handsome, like, okay, I kind of... Where is this going? Like, I thought this was going to be Nightbreed. Where where the fuck is this going? And then he pops out in the fucking gimp suit. I'm like, oh, they're just insane. They were already calling each other mommy and daddy. And this just went somewhere so crazy. And it just it hooked me. I was like, okay, I'm completely on board. Where is this insanity going to go? I don't think it can be understated, too, that they have theme music, which is just those dissonant strings. Oh. Every time... They pop up and they're hunting them, and it's like the startle moment. They have these, they have this terrible string chorus that follows them, and it's just, oh man, it just really just turns your stomach. And I like that scene too that you just described was like the quintessential scene for me as a as a kid. Like that's what stuck out in my mind. Like I would always see, yeah, Ving Rhames <laughs> getting spotlighted, that those strings Ooh. hitting, and then him just being just shotgunned, yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. Just, over and over. Yeah. And I'm that's, like, holy shit, like this immediately just unsettled. You're right. The score now this will be a good segue to mention this at this point. Is I'd mentioned in the Guts and Bolts that there was an original composer, Graham Rebel, and Don Peake said that after, you know, the wrapping of the film, they were doing some post production stuff, putting the music together. Wes Craven called him and was kind of a bit in a panic. He's like, the score is not really working. And we need you to come in and help. The reason why is because Graham Revel, they said it was more of a melancholic kind of jazzy score. Mm-hmm. It just didn't really fit the tone of what was going on, you know? No, it's most... And that's not no discredit to his body of work. It's just for this particular film, it didn't work. It just seems like keys and strings, you know? A lot of sub bass yeah. and a lot of just... He said it was Revel's composition was more percussive. Yeah. You know, and so in contrast, when Don Peacock called, he worked previously with Craven I mentioned in The Hills Have Eyes, and he said while he was studying music, one of his teachers, this is Don Peake, he said that his teacher Paul Glass studied under the tutelage of a Polish, this was like communistic Poland at this time, composer of music. The guy's name is Krzysztof Penderecki, and he was known for using a system of violins, and the system was called the quarter tone system, and it was very dissonant. And so he said back in the 70s when he started studying that style of composition for films. He said it was completely different from some of the cinema at that time because they weren't using really dissonant pieces. So he's like, all right. He saw the scene, what you guys are talking about, the gimp suit scene, <laughs> where he comes out blasting. And 
he's like, that was the first scene he had seen of the movie that Wes had sent to him. And he's like, all right. He's like, I'm going to use this dissonant string and just kind of, you know, build this dread. And he said he sent a demo to him. That was the first demo was that piece. And then he got the entire film and sent him three demos. And the three demos were in pieces. He said one was for the house, one was for the characters inside the house, specifically the family, and then for kind of like the beats, you know, chase scenes, etc. And so he said he literally wrote the composition of the film in three days. Wow. Yeah, he said normally where it would take somebody maybe three weeks. He said just because he was such a workaholic and, you know, he worked with Wes Craven in the past, his son... Michael Peake, he said that they had built kind of a studio in their home to work on music composition, but he said his, he owes his son a lot of credit because his, his son was a whiz at synthesized keys, so they incorporate a lot of that too in the yeah. film. Yeah, so it just gave it a well balance, and of course, it's one of those things in the film, man, that's it's also recognizable as the score. <laughs> it's awesome. What did you say, this ultimate despair? Or, oh my gosh, it just feels like that's quintessentially like if I had that song on like a playlist it just be like ultimate despair <laughs> yeah that's it that's it right <laughs> that's it right yep. ultimate like, despair yeah. <laughs> yeah and next and that's that feeling yeah exactly because it doesn't feel like there's any sort of a you can't go anywhere from that sound you're stuck in a corner <laughs> and it totally captures that deer in the headlights yeah. Kind of thing. It's like, oh, fuck the hair again. Oh, man. I think that's kind of a scary moment, too, in the film. Not only, you know, is he shooting that fucking shotgun up down the hallway, getting back to Everett, but, you know, Fool is in the bathroom hiding the whole time. And that's something that I think almost every kid can relate to if you've ever played hide and seek or just, you know, being chased or something. You run to the bathroom and you hide yourself in the bathroom. Yeah. But in this scenario, somebody's chasing you with a fucking shotgun. Yeah. You know, through proxy. Also something you might relate to. Yeah, but I mean, that's... I don't know your upbringing. <laughs> what I'm getting at is, is you have this, this sense of dread regardless if you're being chased. I mean, hopefully not being chased with a shotgun, but just right. the sense of being chased. And then it's approaching you, and so it ratchets oh, you up. you really don't think you have anywhere to go. Then... No. Uh, and then he starts blowing the fucking door down <laughs> with the shotgun. Yeah. You know, and of course, full. He's he's crapful. And... So here's a little continuity, maybe error, you could say. House is torn apart with shotgun oh, shells. <laughs> yeah. Torn apart. And then Fool gets out of the house, right? About three quarters of the way through the film. And makes one phone call to the police to report child abuse. And the whole police force turns up chief and all yeah. on this one complaint <laughs> and they scour the house to find nothing they don't find this house riddled with shotgun shell like, no you wouldn't you know i don't know to me in my head what happened in between that we didn't get to see was pretty much the same thing that happened in matilda with miss honey's classroom <laughs> when the trench pulls coming <laughs> no she did what actually happens is they pull the people up from under the stairs. They form this giant cleaning crew. You just see this guy ride through the hallways on one of those riding cleaners. Yeah, that's probably what happened. Yeah, the I think it's repairman. They hired an illegal. No, I'm They're just kind of, you know, I'm just thinking of... With all the traps and shoots and, you know, mazes in the house. Yeah. I mean, it's... They're, they're just possibly just for aesthetics, right? They just want to see visually. I know I'm probably reading too much into this, but I think the probably bigger picture of that is the fact that most, if not all, of those cops that arrive are white people, too. Yeah, I mean, it, I think... They're the, just there for coffee and biscuits. I, I, I think you could look at all those traps and things, too, and, yeah. and Fool's whole journey behind the walls. Yeah, exactly. Trying to... 
rise above and get out, he's got to go through a lot of bullshit. Yeah. So it's just all these obstacles. The, just just another. The, yeah, just the plight of a young black man trying to escape the house of the white oligarchs. Yeah. And you know, like I don't know. How have we gotten this far and not mentioned the fact though that fool pulls off the coolest fucking trick ever with the goddamn candle and the coins? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. How fucking old? Yeah. Oh my god! I was blown away. I was like, "Oh, that's how he's that's how he's doing it." I would have yeah. never thought of that. Wow, that's awesome! I want to try that. <laughs> yeah, there's a, yeah. There's a I want to get a candle and some coins and stick the coins into the candle just just to watch it. Just to yeah. watch it. Yeah. Um, Why not? I like the planning forethought with all the characters. Like the um, mommy and daddy knew Fool was coming back, so what did they do? They recorded a tape. Yes, they did. <laughs> to, uh, oh, yeah, they fucking Ferris Bueller'd him. They, they yeah, did. <laughs> they, they recorded a tape, and on the tape, they also paid homage to Nightmare on Elm Street yes, by reading the prayer, and I lay me down to sleep. I yeah. don't know what the hell the prayer is. It's a fucked up prayer, actually, because I remember saying that prayer as a kid before it's bedtime. Like if I children, should right? kill before yeah, I Yeah, they use, should I, I mean, the one that I recall, of course, is, you know, if, if I, I die, die before, die. yeah, before I wake, I pray, pray the Lord, Lord my soul to take. take. You're like, like, damn, that's heavy. It's like, hey. Before bed. Hey, you know, as long as you're saying your prayer, nothing matters. You know, you can Angel you can keep the prisoners in the basement and eat the corpse oh. and kill the man. That's right. Just don't. Uh... <laughs> it's well, based no, on America. When I was born, my grandma embroidered a pillow with that prayer on it. No kidding. I was like, she was going to say she embroidered you. No, that's like, me. <laughs> me and my brother each got one when we were born. And so, oh yeah, I had to say that prayer every night, but... Weird. I mean, uh, yeah, Had I was having indoctrined. Uh, also Mexican American though, so death was already kind of there. Yeah, uh, you've seen Coco. Yeah, love Coco. Everywhere, <laughs> check out that dichotomy. Jeez. Yeah, all right. But all right, so looking at it, death was just a thing. One of the one of the main questions I have for you. Now, this is very subjective. You can run wild with it. All right, so knowing that the people under the stairs finally get out of the house. What do you think happens to them? Because there's no closure with them. And nobody seemed to notice that they just aimlessly walk about. Alice in chains. (laughs) They just look like crackheads anyway. That's why people didn't notice. Skid Row. It's funny you mentioned Skid Row. Skid Row. Because shot in L.A. Yeah, exactly. Sebastian Bach. Did I say Sebastian Bach? Yeah. 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 Kip Winger. Yeah. They went to... They were in L.A. They were in L.A., they went to the, the 90s music scene, and, I mean, that was the end. They no. put a little bit more product in their hair, they were playing down at the whiskey that Friday. Or they, I don't know. Horror metal? Yeah, they moved away. <laughs> maybe, no. maybe they moved away and started black metal. One of the... <laughs> <laughs> one of the one of the things that, that uh, Fool tells them that the that's women? waiting for them on the outside is the women, so did they get out and go rapey? Yeah, I don't know. Probably not. They have a uh, well. They're cannibals. They're feral. Well, so <laughs> this is this is this is the this thing. Is very this is thing. They're feral and they only have a taste for human flesh. So I don't think they have a good future really because they don't. They're you know they're gonna try McDonald's and be like fuck that like this sucks. Well, they don't have any money either. They have nowhere to go. They have no. I don't know. Point of reference. They knew where the gold was at. They might have loaded up before they went out. That was right behind them, though. No, was... wait, wait. The most selective explosion ever at the end. Oh, my God. What did they write down? They said, so thankful the dynamite was strong enough to kill Daddy, clear the house of all of its money, 
but not destroy the integrity of the foundation, allowing fool to get out unscathed. Yeah, uh, the most selective explosion ever. Very fairy tale. Rained money down on yeah. everybody, uh, and li- it was the literal redistribution of wealth. Yeah, yeah exactly. And so, yeah, for, to giving back to the whole community from the projects who showed up. Who, just in time to see Mommy about to make a racial slur. Who, yeah, wait, who showed up and then racial. didn't detain Mommy in any way when shit first started to go down and oh. she was outside. Right, this is the time before video phones, and so they all had to just show up. You know? it was, like, yeah, and you know how... There's no Facebook uh, Live it or streaming it or YouTube. They were like... Oh, we got you, bitch. <laughs> well, we know how unworthy eyewitness testimony is. Oh, yeah. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, they, they could get away with it in the 90s, is what I'm getting at. But kind of tying back into that, before the pre-explosion with Mommy Dearest in the house, is she actually foreshadows her own death. I do want to mention that. You kids are going to be the death of me. I wrote that down yeah, because one lot. of the things that I felt made this movie fun mm-hmm. was the fact that there is a lot of really obvious foreshadowing, yeah. so you know what you're getting into the entire time. Well, you, you already mentioned But then they still throw twists at you. Much yeah. like a fairy tale. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Wes Craven talked about the fact that he loved incorporating tarot cards and mysticism and, you know, kind of that kind of narrative into this story. He played with it hugely, almost a play, but... It, that's a major theme hugely. in Serpent and the Rainbow. Bigly. Bigly, hugely. <laughs> in Serpent and the Rainbow. Bing Rames for Secretary of Pussy. MAGA. <laughs> <laughs> That's not a bad slogan. But I, Wendy Roby as mom, yeah. finally going full bonkers, right? With Alice telling her, You're You are not. never my mother. And then Tyler watching that on Mother's Day. And then... Watching the mother-daughter... For me, I think... Relationship. (laughs) Yeah, now that I look back at this film, I was like, that might be, for me, like, one of those scenes now that strikes more of a chord than anything. Just the fact that you can see now she's completely... She's lost it. Like, the girl (laughs) is just, like, completely, like, you're not my mom no more. The people are already... They're out. She's in a situation now where she has she's, to... She's an animal. It's fight or flight. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. She doesn't even have the her The curtain thin, has been drawn back. Her thin moral code of whatever it was, her skewed views. It's intense. She has nothing left to lose at that point. She's like, okay, I'm coming at you, psycho knife. Uh, that's what was that? That was really from like the end of Psycho. It felt like the end of Psycho, you know, with the Norman Bates reveal... <laughs> And well, he's the mother, and then he's got the knife, funny. and yeah. then he gets tackled. It's very much like that, though, the wide sprawl coming running at, with a knife. Well, with it being Mother's Day, and with how the <laughs> fact it ends, it's all been contained in the house, and really fucked up it ends on the staircase the way it does, kind of reminded me of Inside. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what you mean. That <laughs> movie's so intense, dude. Also, maybe not a movie to watch on Mother's Day. No. Probably not a movie to watch on Christmas, which we did. <laughs> Anything symbolic about it? Well, I guess Daddy gets killed by an outsider, but Mommy gets killed by her own doing. Right, you know? exactly. She gets killed by her daughter. Well, there was a scene that it was kind of it, it was a parallel scene. It was right after Alice gets the purity scrub in the tub. <laughs> <laughs> purity scrub in the tub. I'm gonna make that. <laughs> That's my 2020s look. <laughs> All right, so Etsy. All right, so she gets Alice out of the tub, and then while that's happening, Fool and Dad are down in the basement, and he's chopping up being rames. And there's a scene, if you catch it, where you can see Fool getting pushed into the people, their den, and then you can see Alice being pushed up against the wall. And 
it's a parallel of both of the characters, mother, father, the son, daughter, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So yeah, that was kind of their demise is what I'm getting at. Right. So that's another kind of a weird foreshadowing too. Is like that was the mirror image of each other. Totally. Yeah. So with the fact that over the course of this movie, basically the entire story from the tarot in the beginning comes true. At the very end of it, Ruby says, you know, after all this, goes through the sun, the little boy's burned away, left with a man. He won't be called fool no more. Does that mean after this movie, he is forced to spend the rest of his life as Poindexter? <laughs> oh, man. I think you guys might find this interesting. Is uh, I was listening to... Poindexter? Yeah. That's his name in the film. That's his name, Poindexter. 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 Wait. No, I probably just called Dex. How about yeah, his Poindexter? mom does call him Dexter. Yeah. So. It's not as bad. <laughs> no, what I was going to say Which, is... Dexter, Latin for right... Left, sinister. Huh. He's the good guy, not the bad guy. Hey, all right. <laughs> That's good insight. Thanks, Tyler. <laughs> no, what I was going to say is uh, Brandon Adams, I was listening to, there's a YouTube video where they have a panel of some of the cast at a Lexington like horror convention. And he admitted, he's like, you know, after all these years of people call me the fool because the film is like, everybody calls me fool. He's like, I actually did a tarot card reading. Let somebody do it just for shits and giggles. And he's like, you would never guess the last card that was flipped was the fucking pool. So he's like, even through a real reading, still, he's always a fool. Still coming out. Yeah, which I thought was kind of interesting. It's weird how that works. Who knows? But definitely sticks. Like I said, knowing all the films that I grew up watching with him in it, and then the use of actually having a child protagonist in a film, in a horror film on top of it, totally unique in horror Something relatable, seeing it as a kid. Maybe that's something that it can allure different age groups too, is what I'm getting at. Like, yeah. you know, I guess depending on how you view it. Now, seeing it as an adult, I see it more so from the families, <laughs> their struggles, what their fuck is going on inside the house. Man, so I didn't actually get to watch this movie as a kid like you guys, but it did hit my nostalgia button in one really weird way, and this is going to sound super fucking creepy, <laughs> but I always did kind of want to have a giant house that I could go through the walls of. When oh, I was yeah, a kid, absolutely. Yeah. when I was a kid, that's all stuff. I wanted was a there fucking. I wanted all of my like my secret fucking passages throughout the entire fucking place. Yeah, there was something abs- to it, yeah. Absolutely, that like there's it's, something about like this that it hits the same button that like the Goonies had button. Yeah, has, you yeah. Know? It's just like the exploration of this crazy elaborate small yeah, system. It's a labyrinth. Like, it's a maze. Yeah, exactly. A fun house of it, sorts. Exactly. It totally looks like those things. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, it's not that weird. Not that weird, Tyler. We all feel that same but way. But I want, I want my yeah crawl spaces. We'll give you a house with crawl spaces. Yes. And through Jafar. Empty walls. <laughs> yeah, we can do Jafar this. Jafar house? We have a green screen, Tyler. We can do anything. Yeah. All right, so here's something I wanted to say about this film before I blubber too much more. Is Tyler and I, we did a double feature a while back. For those who are interested, we did Get Out and Green Room. Now, we this talked reminded about, me of Green Room, too. Yeah. We talked about Get Out being a woke film. But perhaps this film was woke before woke was a social meme. Yeah, correct. This is before the riots in L.A. This is, I mean, this is 91, right? Well, yeah, we pointed out Candyman touches on it, too. Oh, yeah. So, yeah this is... There was, I mean, I feel like that. this is when this is really be, was becoming an issue, you know, that with the yeah. projects being established, the, the gap was just growing. But you're right, yeah. It was growing, and it was becoming hard to ignore for anybody. It was the, yeah. the voice. So with that in mind, since Patrick, you just experienced it two and a half hours ago, what do you think of the This Is America video? <laughs> Holy shit. Yeah. I, uh, the most woke music video? Yeah, I, uh, 
I agreed that it was important, and I have I was, I had a hard time finding words because I just went fuck. It was just profound, visually stunning. I felt like childish Gambino utilized. I don't know a lot about him at all. <clears throat> Never listened to his music before, and so it's just. But I know I know about him, and I just feel like all of his uh, talents were utilized in that video, like getting you into a vulnerable spot with his comedy and then delivering violence and just, yeah, it was beautiful. It was just like, oh, very symbolic and appropriate and enjoyed it far more than anything that I've ever heard from Kanye West. <laughs> I hate Kanye West. But anyway, yeah, no, I, I enjoyed it thoroughly. Awesome. Yeah, sorry, that was a little bit of a tangent, but we did kind of start the day with that. Yeah, and well, it ties you know, in. I, you know, it ties in. As a, as a film, yeah, as a filmmaker, as an artist, that I, I love to see art, and, and especially thought-provoking art and stuff that makes you feel something, something that confronts you, and you're like, oh, this makes me uncomfortable. Why is this making me uncomfortable? Yeah. All right, so speaking of art, can we expect to see a People Under the Stairs influence in Jafar? I think we already have. Um, <laughs> yes, of course. I don't think, you know, I, like we've said before, you find everything is remixed and ideas are repurposed or replaced into content, but it's not always a willful thing, you know. It's just the ingredients we're made of, and so we just we reprise the stuff that we love. Yeah, you know, in a unique, interesting way, it ties back into this show, it ties back into just our upbringing is that through the characterization of ourselves yeah. so we tend to draw from our influences and this i would imagine this would be no exception i've already told you i might be trying to incorporate some more some characterizations oh, of my character from this you know, film a character so i'm tyler and i'm daddy <laughs> yeah oh my God. I feel, like, I feel like Sunshine Lewis is a representation of someone from one, one of the, the people. Stairs. Yeah, he's stereo yeah, person number I one. I feel like you could say Don Santos' daddy, you know? Just <laughs> yeah. he's got a capitalistic you know, state of mind. Hoarding wealth. Oh my God. Hoarding wealth. Pizza milk. Pizza milk would be the. Don Santos and Gimpsy. The house. <laughs> the house. <laughs> I guess so. That's the cave, man. Yeah. Cave is the house. The cave is the house. Maybe the grocery store is the house. The grocery store is absolutely the house. Yeah, and well, the funny thing is the next episode's about awareness. So being woke, right? (laughs) To yourself and to your surroundings, because that's important and fundamental to the grocery store civilization. By the way, did we mention go watch Jafar? (laughs) Right, we're plugging it. Sorry, plugging. It's okay. All right, a few things I want to mention before I sign off and on this particular episode is I want to mention the house real briefly because it is a real house in Los Angeles and it is does it really have walkways between the walls I don't know necessarily no most of that was created on a sound stage but the house itself is the Thomas W Phillips residence it was built in 1905 now this house has 8 bedrooms 4 baths 7,700 square feet inside, and it sits on a little bit less than a half an acre of property. But the interesting fact, it not only is it a historical site in Los Angeles, it's also a former home that belonged to actress Butterfly McQueen. People might recognize her as Scarlett O'Hara's Maid and Gone with the Wind. She actually owned the house Mm -hmm. up until like, I want to say that late 90s possibly. Yeah. So, yeah, it's like the house itself, it was known for 
you know, setting that outside suburb of Los Angeles, right? It was just one of those houses that during that time period was kind of being dilapidated, even though it was a historical site. Yeah. You know, he said it kind of lent more into the film. Like there was a specific reason they chose that house. It has a history. It has, has a an allure. Has, a, has an allure and a character. To yeah. It. Like it's yeah. Old Frankly, celebrity. Danny, I don't give a damn. <laughs> <laughs> Bill Point, Tyler. Uh, did you guys notice with the when they we see the whole shot of the people under the stairs when they're above the stairs coming to get mommy? Did you notice one of them is uh, wearing a, a, no. wearing a mask? <laughs> yeah, yes. that yeah, makes yeah. it look like the creature from the Black Lagoon. A little bit, yeah. Oh, yeah, a little bit. I don't know. I thought, I was like, what do I see? I see when that it was wearing that mask, because it has the mouth cut out, right? And so it has this weird... Yeah, it just kind this, of... Ha- this helmet sort of thing. With the mouth still exposed. Yeah, and I just felt like it was all the quote-unquote monsters. I might be able to give you some closure on that, just listening to the commentary. Craven said that the uh, special effects team, and even K&B, they were like... They gave that character that skin helmet because they felt it was more like a sensory deprivation thing for that character. Where, you know, because they've been hidden underneath the stairs yeah. for so long and they don't see light unless it's through specs. Okay. You know, he's like, it was just kind of a, a play on that character. Okay. Just, it's just what they were doing. Sensory deprivation, yeah. He's like, I don't know, I'm going to make myself a hat. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in my skin flap hat. It's like, well, then they should have done something else. You should have, like, been bejeweled with, like, skin teeth or something. Or something. <laughs> Got some little eyeball oh, yeah. earrings. I don't know. Like, I got really bored down here. I did a lot of crafting. <laughs> Etsy. Etsy. We, we didn't have a lot, so. I made a hat. I was going to do a scarf tomorrow. It's <laughs> yeah. elaborate weaving, skin weave. And they were using child labor on the planet. Yeah. Jan Birch, the guy who I talked about, was the stairmaster. He was the one who showed full where the hidden money was at anyhow he talked about the fact that uh, his contact lenses at that time it was kind of a new technique using black yeah. you know contact lenses and soft lenses were kind of just kind of coming into fashion whatever KMB sent a team of optometrists to develop that and long story short Jan said that his optometrist told him he shouldn't keep it in for more than like 25 minutes at a time at best and then he recalls, he's like, yeah, three and a half hours later, they took it out. And he said, I was... my eye was stuck to it. He said, basically, he was blind for like two and a half days. Oh, my God. Shit. Yeah. So what that caused to happen was in between takes, wear it for 25 minutes, take it off for five minutes, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, that was kind of a new technology. And they used it in this film. And of course, <laughs> hopefully it's progressed since that time period. Oh, but yeah, yeah. I mean, but for the most part, listening to the commentary... Listening to the actors' experience, listening to the special effects team, Don Peake, the music guy, Sandy Sissel, the DP, just everybody associated with the film, they had nothing but kind words to say about Wes Craven. They said he was a very quiet, well-spoken gentleman. He was a professor at one time. And uh, they said in between takes, he liked to do crossword puzzles and just be very active. I think it was Kurtzman. It might have been Nicotero. They worked with him on screen, but he said he literally handed out crossword puzzles to everybody on set so they could work on them, pair notes. But long story short is that it seemed like any time somebody worked with Wes Craven, like I said, it launched their careers. It gave them a creative freedom where they said typically you don't get, especially yeah. with, in this case, like Universal Pictures or any kind of big parent company. Yeah. But they gave him freedom too. And it kind of pays off in his films. You can... Definitely see it in this film. For me, it's one of those films looking at his catalog. This one jumps out yeah. 
because it ties back to my childhood, and it's just because it's such a bizarre story to begin with. Right. Story wins always. I love it, man. And I just feel like I'm really happy that Wes Craven took his success to and utilized it to make yeah. original screenplays like this, where he's just like, okay, thanks for the money, Nightmare on Elm Street, now I'm going to make this. And, and I uh, want to make this, and yeah, it just launched a lot of stuff. A lot of his stories came primarily from his dreams, right? and well, he and just also, built on them. Yeah, and like you said, dr dreams and reality, because yeah. a lot of times, oftentimes, reality is scarier than anything that we can produce. And I think that's... And humans are... Ving Rhames is Secretary of Pussy. Right. Yeah. <laughs> humans, though, are, you know, more monstrous than anything we can cook up. You know, we like to cook up, for the longest time, all these stories about, quote-unquote, monsters, but that's just, this is us, people. Well, I think that's a unique thing, too, is that he's letting you know that the monster can be in your neighborhood. It seems like a... Wearing a cross around their neck. Yeah. The monster is gentrification. Yeah. Woke. That's what I'm getting at. <laughs> Hashtag stay woke. Stay woke, people. Uh, with it, the movie ends with the song... Do the right thing. Yes, it does. He even makes. I mean, this yes, is weird. Yes, it does. <laughs> no, he, As he, if the point wasn't made before. It, no, like, what I'm do getting the at. the right thing. Is come on, cops. <laughs> <laughs> Craven talked about the fact that you know if he wanted this film to be like super social aware, he's like somebody like Spike Lee should have done it. Yeah. And maybe ending on this note, a good segue too is before Wes Craven passed because he did pass in 2015. He was actually in talks to have this movie adapted into a television series. By sci-fi, right? Yeah. So there was pox in the works of a possible, not necessarily remake, but a reboot. And it kind of makes me wonder, like, which direction he could have gone in, what ideas they had. In I don't know. I don't know about Sci-Fi Channel, but... Which is funny I because... Just, uh, I'd, I, just got... I'd say if you give it to Jordan Peele, then I'm good, but I'm also way better with him doing his own things. So. Yeah, right. exactly. I'd rather, I'd rather, I'd rather him do his own things. You know, I feel like this was a good... This is a good open and close scenario. If it's something he wants to do on the weekends, then cool. But but let's not... You know, when I think TV series, I think of like... Oh, you know, That's the other thing. I don't know how book. this would translate to a TV yeah, series. Yeah, it's just like, well, let's go back into their house next week to see more people under the stairs. I mean, I'm sure there's a way to do it because I'm sure I've watched TV shows based on something flimsier. I know that I have. I watched Sleepy Hollow. But... <laughs> <laughs> let's go back to the basement and see what he's crafting. <laughs> yeah. On the next episode of this old house. <laughs> but no, I. But yeah, that I don't know how it translate yeah. anyway. That doesn't yeah, really make I'm, sense. Yeah, I'm okay with. I, I feel like there's full closure. Like I'd be okay if they never ever touch this film again in terms of remakes, reboots, television series, what what have you. I love the film for what it's worth. Yeah, it always Great plays. Performances. Yes. Go out and see it if you haven't. We haven't destroyed it for it's you. It's definitely a cool classic. We told Tyler. For, for several years to do this and he finally did and I think he's happy I'm really happy he looks happy I might, I'm might. i probably actually going to end up buying this movie I'm going to spend money to get this movie I'm I can about stream it on my stars that I pay for every month anyway but I'm actually going to buy it okay and watch Twilight Zone Tyler Bruce Willis Twilight Zone what did I say Twilight Zone I didn't mean Twilight Zone I mean do watch <laughs> Twilight Zone but watch Twin Peaks Tyler I gotta finish ER that's <laughs> God, it's going to be such a, it's going to be polar opposite. You know, you're just going to like fly from South America to Antarctica. All right. That's not that it's far. Journey. It's <laughs> I'm going to go from like ice cream to soy sauce. Yes. <laughs> we know a little bit about the sauce. Soy sauce. Well, I want to thank you guys for having me on. Super pleasure. Love the squirms. Love Danny and Tyler. Uh, oh, Danny and Tyler? <laughs> We'll love you, Daddy. <laughs> Tyler and Danny. 
So I feel like we had this conversation on The Shining, calling you daddy. Yeah, you probably did call me daddy. <laughs> and we can expect you back on when we do Pet Cemetery. Oh my gosh, dude. We're going to spoil 100 right fucking now. percent. Patrick will be rejoining us soon. Yeah, so if we haven't already said this, you're definitely an honorary squirm, for sure. Yeah, I just, I'm glad that you joined us, man. This was a film likes to talk to you. I know that was a childhood favorite, still a favorite, still a favorite of mine. Tyler, I'm glad we got to introduce it to you. Oh, uh, yeah, this was a lot of fun. So, yeah, man. Fantastic. Oh, shit. Okay, so now we should probably do all the official stuff to wrap yeah. it up, right? If you liked what you heard and you want to keep listening to us, please hit subscribe on however you're listening to us right now. If you don't like how you're listening to us, then there's links to the most popular listening services at the top of our website, www.friedsquirms.com, and you can always stream us down at the bottom of the page. There's also links to like our Instagram, the Facebook, the Twitter, Twitter. Fried Squirms for the Facebook, Fried Squirms Podcast for the Insta, and, and at Fried Squirms. Yeah. You can also email us at squirmcast at gmail.com. If you want to leave us a suggestion, recommendation, we also like collaborations. Don't be afraid to give us a, a message. Or leave a note on our fridge. Or a massage. Come and knock on our door. Leave a massage on our fridge. <laughs> is that a euphemism? It is now. <laughs> and shit, with that... I've been Tyler. I've been Danny. And I've Patrick. <laughs> Fries Rooms? Out. Out.